Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 149, my guest is Waxwing, aka Adam Gibson. So I'm just recently back from my trip to Austin and London and had a fantastic time. I had the pleasure of attending some different meetups with various different Bitcoin developers, Andrew Polstra, Andrew Chow, James Chang, Chris Stewart. I also did a couple of listener meetups while I was in London and also had the chance to MC the Advancing Bitcoin conference. This interview was recorded at the Advancing Bitcoin venue. But first, a word on behalf of the sponsors of the show. If you're looking to buy or trade Bitcoin, make sure you go to Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. Renowned for their focus on security, they're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. They're consistently rated the best. They have a high quality platform with high trading volume and low fees. Also, Kraken have 24-7 support, so you can just quickly ask them any questions in the chat and you can get set up really quickly there. Kraken also offer Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for advanced Bitcoin trading on the go. There's also Kraken OTC Desk for those seeking more private and personalized service. There's Kraken Margin up to five times and Kraken Futures up to 50 times leverage. Go and sign up at kraken.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is a Bitcoin financial services company offering multi-signature as the foundation of their products. So you can use a two of three multi-signature vault. There is a web interface. It's really easy to use. You can use Trezor and Ledger and Cold Card is coming soon. And so you can hold two of the keys and you can split those up geographically and Unchained can be the third key in that scenario and they can be the backup for you or they can co-sign for you if you need. And also, if you need to get liquidity and you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, Unchained's collateralized loans offer a unique option. You can put up your Bitcoin and receive USD. All Bitcoin is stored on-chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses and is never rehypothecated. I'm really impressed with Unchained. Check out some of my recent interviews with Will Cole and Parker Lewis. Unchained are doing awesome work. They've got excellent services and valuable content. Go and learn more at unchained-capital.com. Check out CypherSafe at cyphersafe.io. They're producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet and you've got a BIP39 seed, those 12 or 24 words, have you backed it up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper-evident? The Cypher Wheel comes in a wheel shape and it's got little slots for you to put the tiles in. So basically you put in the four letters of each word and that's enough to recover each of the words the cipher wheel also has a padlock tamper evidence seal so you know if it's been opened so make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs orders are going out now go and order yours at cyphersafe.io adam gibson also known as waxwing is a bitcoin privacy advocate researcher and blogger and he's also well known as a contributor to join market so For this episode, Adam joins me to discuss his thoughts on privacy in Bitcoin. We talk about the consumerist mentality, blockchain analysis companies, CoinJoin, Snicker, JoinMarket, and PayJoin. Here's the interview. Adam, welcome to the show. Hello, Stefan. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. I've been uh, very keen to have you on the show. Uh, I guess uh, some listeners will know you as Waxwing. You're probably more known as Waxwing than as Adam. A little bit more, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm a big fan of your work. I really like what you've done in terms of uh, putting out a lot of educational stuff like your blog and mm-hmm. your work with uh, Join Market and obviously got a, a, a history within the space and a focus on, I would say, 
you know, Bitcoin privacy and also around the cryptography and the mathematics uh, behind it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think obviously you've done the origin story. I'm sure you've done uh, many. Uh, but if you could just give just a basic background on yourself, just for any listeners who don't already know you. Sure. Um, my background is sort of a mixture of engineering and teaching, uh, especially mathematics teaching. I, my, my degree is in mathematics and physics, and um, I've done various kinds of... Uh, I've, I've been a nuclear engineer and a, and a software engineer for a, for a big financial corporation, so uh, that background. So, But actually, I didn't really take any interest in cryptography until Bitcoin came along. And uh, I guess I actually took uh, an interest in Bitcoin, I guess it was 2012, 2013, because of the kind of political, especially the financial and economic aspect, you know, the financial crisis stuff. Um, I mean, I guess like most people, I struggled a bit to convince myself that Bitcoin actually made any sense. But <laughs> once I did, after, you know, this is having an engineering background, even if you don't have a cryptography background, helps you in that you can look at the white paper and kind of make sense of it you know it's very difficult even if you do have the technical background but without it it's even harder right so because i had that background i sort of got interested and then that sort of spurred further interest in what you know how does this actually work at the deepest technical levels you know the mathematics behind it the cryptography behind it and i it really clicked for me after bitcoin why cryptography especially public key cryptography is such a huge deal for society and so I've now continued to just take interest in, in that area, you know, the, the privacy of this digital cash that we're using and the different techniques we can use and the, the mathematics behind all that. Yeah, Fantastic. So, look, let's start with, a, I guess, just broader thoughts on privacy right now. So Bitcoin right now, it's one of those things where you get some people who might falsely believe, okay, oh, I just use Bitcoin and I'm private already. And then the other end of the spectrum is, oh, no, the whole thing is transparent and everyone can see everything. And it's it's like somewhere in between, depending on how good you are with it. How would you sort of summarize that? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I remember giving that exact kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, that exact kind of summary, um, I don't know, a few years ago in Milan, there was some presentation, it was just a, uh, you know, up till some point around 2012, everyone just assumed Bitcoin was anonymous. <laughs> and then something happened. And by, by the time we got to like 20, I don't know, 2016, everyone assumed Bitcoin is perfectly traceable. And, and people, I guess it's just people need uh, shorthands for things in life, things that they can't study in detail themselves. They want a nice, simple summary of something. Yeah. But unfortunately, some things by their nature are not simply summarizable. Um, but I think my, my sort of broader philosophy on 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 you know, where we are with privacy and Bitcoin and other related <coughs> uh, technologies, that I think I think we have a kind of I used to, I used to like to express the, the, the problem uh, as a, as a category error. Uh, I used to kind of rail about this on Reddit years ago. <laughs> I used to tell people stop thinking of uh, Bitcoin like you know Starbucks points. I used to say it's more like Swift, not Starbucks points. And by Swift, of course, I mean the the uh, the uh, bank transfer, international bank transfer system. I don't mean anything to do with Apple code or whatever. Um, so what's my point is that there's a tendency, and I think it's very deeply rooted in us. Maybe it's exclusive to Westerners, I don't know. But people who live in, in our kinds of societies, um, we have this very consumerist mindset. And it's, it's so deeply embedded that we, we, we're not even aware of it. You know, we tend to think of everything in terms of, you know, how convenient is it? Um, how does it immediately, like, press my buttons? You know, does it look nice and shiny, right? I mean, 
Um, this may seem slightly off topic because I'm, I'm not actually talking about privacy directly, but I think what you're going to see, I'm going to try and convince you that there is actually a pretty close connection because, you know, people want a nicely packaged, things like, you know, nice UIs. It's very understandable. They want that. But no matter how nice the UI is, the underlying thing itself is extremely kind of hardcore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a protocol and it's very much based on a, a kind of adversarial model of defending against massive attacks. When you're a user of that protocol, you're supposed to hold these keys. And that's just something that people have never really done in the past. It's, it's taken full responsibility it's a bit like you know people didn't store their gold, their gold bars in the, in their homes you know they 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 used banks and there were all kinds of problems with that but ultimately that's the kind of trade off people tend to make and people you know they want something comfortable and simple and something that doesn't force them into very difficult situations all the time right so there's a tendency to think of how can we make bitcoin like that how can we make it a nice shiny app, you know, make it like fintech, you know, just I just Stripe or something or whatever the latest app is that people use to pay with, I don't know, Venmo. But you're you're trying to trying to f a square peg into a round hole, I feel, when you're doing that. And you should I think we should think of Bitcoin itself as this very kind of not user-friendly, not easy to use protocol. But that doesn't mean of course that we should give up on allowing people to use it, that we, of course we should make things as, 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 as possible, as feasible as possible, if that makes any sense. But uh, we should think about ways of doing that that are kind of somewhat offset from the protocol directly. You know, raw protocol usage is not an everyday person thing. And I know a lot of people would like it to be. And of course, huge strides have been made. And you know, just simple things like the fact that you can run a Bitcoin core net node now on your laptop is a tremendous engineering achievement but it still doesn't mean the average person is going to do it and that's relevant to things like join market it's relevant to things like any kind of coin join in my opinion about you know best practices and about privacy that it's fiddly and difficult it's 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 a technical question like how can you use bitcoin in a properly private way and so perhaps in the longer term we're going to have this kind of stratification so that Yes, privacy at the base layer is something we work on. We're never going to make it perfect, but we work on it. But it's more at the kind of higher end. You know, Lightning is the obvious example where we're going to find ways for ordinary people to achieve better privacy. Yeah. Right. And I think in your blog, you mentioned this idea of Lightning privacy bleeding into the base layer, if you will, of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I really regret not having sort of I mean, apart from a very trivial proof of concept uh, piece of code, I haven't really attempted to, to write any 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 code for that. But I mean, perhaps we're going to get into the weeds of we different, can, yeah, different get into strategies some of that. later. Yeah, but yeah. but but that's certainly an example where we can even uh, that's an even more sophisticated way of looking at it, right? Because you're now saying it's not just that we have like a base layer and high layers, but also we can interact between them in certain ways. You know, which is definitely right. true. Yeah, good point. And I think uh, the point you are also making is that the use of lightning can fundamentally change some of the underlying assumptions about the behaviors on Bitcoin's on-chain uh, traffic in, in that sense. Yeah, I think, but I think that's, that, that's a natural evolution that's likely to happen, at least in an optimistic scenario, that the, the, the character of behavior on-chain chain is going to change dramatically. It's going to be more in the long-term settlement-style transactions. I mean, I, 
I sort of envisage it like, you know, large corporations or even governments, you know, transacting on chain and, and um, individuals can, you know, appeal to it as a, as a sort of last resort, but often will we'll probably not be doing so directly. And I, I know this is this kind of thing that absolutely massively triggers a lot, a very large section of our current community, and especially people who have left our community, shall we put it like that, yeah? Uh, Bcash and, and all the, the similar areas of groups of people. It's not just them, of course, it's people who went to different altcoins. Um, they get very triggered by this idea that what I think what people are suspicious of is the idea that, oh, it's just going to fall back to what it was before, where you have these centralized parties controlling everything and, you know, and, and the ordinary person can't use the, the chain or something. But I just don't think, this, I don't think the successful scenario for Bitcoin could, could realistically be, be different. Maybe I'm just lacking imagination. Right, I yeah. Well, I, let's stay broader for one. I've got one other question I was keen to ask you about. It's We're living in this world where today, essentially, many aspects of our privacy have just been pwned, right? Like yes. your IP, like yeah. th- depending on who you're trying to hide from or whatever, right? The NSA can pretty much get through most things. Like people talk about even using, even Tor is not a silver bullet, and that's just at the IP kind of network level, then like your data has been basically sold and used by, you know, Google and Facebook and Apple and all these people. Is it, would it be fair to say that in Bitcoin, it's like you're not necessarily going to be able to get to the level of privacy versus a target attacker, but at least if you could get to a level of like some kind of privacy versus the dragnet surveillance. Do you have any reflections on that idea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I do think like that. And I think it also ties back in, again, you, your comments about Google and Facebook and what have you, uh, to this, this thing about the consumerist mindset, which I was, maybe I didn't really fully explore what I was trying to say there, but I'm, I'm trying to get at the idea that uh, if we really, if you want to be part of this sort of new cypherpunk world, so to speak, involving, you know, actually using Bitcoin, not just, you know, going to Coinbase and buying some or whatever, then you're going to have to kind of toughen up a bit and stop being this, <laughs> you know, this, this incredibly soft world we live in where we just, we just give in all the time, just take the easy way out. Oh, I'll just use Facebook because everyone's on it, you know. And, oh, yeah, I heard there the, are these ter- terrible privacy violations, but, you know, at the end of the day, people just don't care enough. And, and I, I think if you, if you find that you do care enough, then, yeah, join us and be part of this, this whole experiment. But... You can't, what I'm trying to say is you can't have your cake and eat it. You know, you can't actually be, oh, I'm just going to go back to the normal consumer mode of doing things. And if I'm going to have a Bitcoin wallet, it's going to be on my phone and it's just going to be one click. I'm, an, I'm never going to have to do anything. My bank is going to be hooked up to it. Well, look, I mean, if you're going to be like that, then you're just, it's the same as Facebook and Google and all that stuff. Of course, everything's going to be tracked. Everything's going to be traced. And it doesn't matter if you're using some incredible zero knowledge proof or whatever, because all you're doing ultimately is hooking your name up to some service provider and having all your data flow through them anyway. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of ranting the same thing over and over again, but you, you get my general point. Um, sure. Um, so, look, uh, when we're trying to be private in Bitcoin, there's a lot of different ideas floating around. Some of them are more, let's say, theoretical, and some of them are a little bit more kind of, here's something practical yeah. that a person could really yeah. use. And, like, over the years, many people have thrown out a lot of different ideas. That's right. It's kind of difficult... So, and I guess the other point is that there's not really like a, I think you were making this point earlier, is that um, it's not like there's a prescriptive do X, Y, and Z and you're safe. There's this kind of, Mm -hmm. there's certain tools you can use and they can give you a better chance. Mm. Well, I 
I don't know if this is too nuanced, but I, you can take a, a very prescriptive approach. You can decide that there's this set of steps that one must take. The question is, of course, how practical that is. You know, um, we look at something like uh, Zero Link, the whole kind of project from the Wasabi guys. It's it's an attempt to do like, and I, I don't really know if it's fair to say, but I think Samurai, in a way, uh, those guys also have their own way of looking at it, which is kind of similar in that there's a there's rules you need to follow, right? But ultimately, life is messy. You can't, I mean, especially with something like financial transactions, you can't like control every single aspect of it all the time. So, but but perhaps a more a more a more important or deeper point is, let's say you did you were able to follow those kind of strictures, like I'm going to control exactly how I spend every UTXO under every circumstance. Even if you can somehow like arrange for that to be the case, I personally think that that is a, a road which has sort of diminishing returns. Like it, it, there is definitely value in it. Uh, if you want to be very serious about your privacy, there's definitely value in, in for example, just simply coin control. So in, instead of just arbitrarily spending, actually controlling which groups of coins uh, get spent together but the um the problem when i say diminishing returns what i mean is that there it's 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 the the nature of bitcoin is that it's a very transparent system okay uh especially if we just consider as it is today and when you combine that fact so there is a just the fact that there is a transaction graph alone even if you had blinded amounts which we don't and you combine that with metadata um, there are just so many avenues of attack that I th- that's why I would tend to be on the side of what you were saying earlier, which is that if you're trying to defend against targeted attacks, you know, with something like Bitcoin, good luck. I mean, it's almost impossible, right? Um, you'll have to be very clever. But that, that doesn't mean that we just throw, throw the whole idea of privacy out and we just, oh, forget it. But if we if we use kind of what I would describe as opportunistic methods, uh, well, I guess there's two kinds of methods that I really like. One of them is the more sort of opportunistic, and the other one is the kind of steganographic. So the opportunistic method is, I'm just go- I just want it to be fairly normal for me to do, let's say, a coin join now and again, and I'm not actually that focused on it having a specific pattern necessarily. I mean, it might be nice, for example, if it has a larger anonymity set rather than a smaller one, yeah, but Really, I'm over a long period trying to improve the, so to speak, privacy health of my ecosystem. And, and that, that word ecosystem brings up the other point, of course, which is that it's crucial, or at least it's, there's a huge magnifying effect from the more people you get involved doing it and the more heter- heterogeneous the group is that does it. It's not just having a large number, but having different types of people, you know. So if, if only, I don't know, if only uh, exchanges do one method, then you oh those are exchange. you want the exchanges and the consumers and the, the the businesses and all the other people just to doing you want to, you want it mixing up. So that's the opportunistic idea that I'm not actually aiming to say that by March the first I have perfect privacy on all my coins or the ten thousand anonymities or whatever. But I'm just trying to incrementally improve the situation over time. Which, if you're an ordinary person, I, I feel like that's okay. I mean, you're not you're not. On, on some secret mission, right? <laughs> um, and then the steganographic idea, again, the key, the key point there is that you've kind of blown up this concept of anonymity set. It no longer matters if nobody can distinguish between your type of transaction and another. But unfortunately, I don't really think, I was thinking this on the, on the car on the way here, I don't actually think any of the ideas of steganographic like 
privacy, or maybe I've missed one, uh, actually exist yet, which is kind of unfortunate. Right, just having it like... Well, uh, pay join in join market technically exists, but it has to be two join market wallets, so that's... Right, yeah, and we'll get to that part, I think, yeah. about potentially having more people do that. Uh, one point I was keen to touch on as well, and I'm not sure if you listened to... I did an episode with uh, Ergo BTC. So he's, uh, I think I might listen to some of it, yeah, but I'm not yeah. sure now, yeah. And so in that episode, one point he was trying to make was that actually... Bitcoin can be more private. It's just that right now, the start, you're, we're giving the enemy in some ways a start point by having this KYC and the data sharing yes, ex- between definitely. the exchanges, right? So imagine if the standard way you came into Bitcoin was like you had a friends and family network, right? And, it's, and again, so I'm not saying, look, KYC exchanges are not going anywhere anytime mm-hmm, soon, but mm-hmm. imagine if that were the case and then people were using coin joins and so on, it, or even if they weren't, it would be much harder to pierce through that transaction graph veil right yeah it, uh, definitely it's a huge it's a huge issue um and I, I think it somewhat ties in to my little rant which i may end up ranting again about this <laughs> so stop me if i do uh, about consumerism because people they just want to click the button on the website that they trust they don't yep. want to mess around with some weirdo mm. on mm. go i mean every people treat even the idea of doing a bitcoin exchange for cash as you're some kind of weirdo i mean no come on this is this is how we have to do it we have to have some kind of peer to peer activity so that ultimately there's some you know people talk about closing the economic loop that that would be great i mean we're obviously a huge way away from that but if we just make at least make some moves towards it um which is why i get a little bit upset about this whole you know which i consider this kind of tribal viewpoint that's developed of hodl, 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 and, you know, oh, you're an idiot if you spend Bitcoin. I mean, there are several reasons why it's actually kind of interesting to spend Bitcoin. Um, I understand, like, if, say, say you've got a job and you, you earn fiat money and you sock some away into Bitcoin every month. It doesn't really make much sense for that person financially to be spending any of their Bitcoin. But even in those, for those people, as an experiment, I think you should try it. You know, it's important to actually understand what it is you're investing in because... Yes, this is not a consumer payment system. It's not Visa. It's not, you know, Venmo. But the other extreme is, is also a mistake. You can't say it's not a payment system. It fundamentally is a payment system. And that's why it's, of any, in my opinion, people argue about bootstrapping value. Uh, you know, is it just all relative? Is actually, there's no, nothing has absolute value. Oh, yeah, okay, technically. But actually, the value here is that there is a payment system and it's not censorable. Otherwise, why are we even bothering? <laughs> right. I think of it like... For many people, it just makes sense to hodl, right? But there will yeah. be that phenomenon, and you might call it something like a, you know, graduating, right? Like if you if people who came to Bitcoin in 2010 and 2011, they've graduated, and now they actually do want to spend some Bitcoins right. because they've just hit a certain level that, okay, right. now it makes sense. But someone from the, let's call it, class of mm. 2017 or 2018, yeah. they just want to hodl or it's stack. It's a fair point. Right? Something it's, like it's that, It's a maybe. fair point, but my, my, point, my sort of counterpoint there was that, yeah, you might be in a position where financially it doesn't make sense to spend Bitcoin. Right. But I still think you should try it out as an experiment. I'm not talking about spending all of your money. Right, I'm talking right. about no, totally, trying yeah. it and actually using the technology. Right. Because, you know, a lot of story, people have stories like, oh, I got into Bitcoin when somebody just, like, put it on my phone and I, I just, act, the actual act of seeing it being transferred is in itself, uh, yeah, and I, I, it kind of upsets me a little bit that there are people nowadays who just, like, maybe set up an account on Coinbase or whatever it is and they just, they never do anything. I mean, that just seems wrong to me. <laughs> right, yeah, no, I absolutely always uh, preach uh, self-custody, right? I, yeah. You know, so even for those people buying on an exchange, they, they should be withdrawing to keys they hold. Uh, obviously, there is that debate about, you know, KYC and not KYC. Uh, but I think... More broadly, let, let's go to some of these 
heuristics, right? So okay. as most of uh, probably my listeners are probably well aware, the yep. common input ownership heuristic right. is probably the key one to think yep. about. How does it look like in a world where we're, you know, we're trying to break that? Now, I think it might be interesting if, if we were, let's say, able to have more people using wallets that helped you know, break that heuristic, yeah. would that heuristic then no longer apply? Is that is that what you're kind of thinking? Y- kind of, yeah. Um, so I think it's it's like, I, I, I know this is a very pretentious term, but I, I, I've been taken to using it recently in these discussions is the term shelling point. Um, and just in case anybody's listening who doesn't know the term shelling point, it's the idea that if I tell you, let's meet in New York and you don't know the location, you'd, you'd pick Grand Central Station because that's the one that everyone knows. So there's a kind of convergence of people in a state of low information, convergence to one most plausible possibility. Um, and what we have today is a perfectly reasonable situation where you, know, you look at something like, if you look at something that has, let's say, one, two or three inputs and two outputs, then the assumption is that it's a payment from one person to another okay you don't actually have to make this let's just keep it simple it's a it's a payment from one person to another uh, with one change output and that's why there are two outputs one's payment and one's change and the other assumption would be that all the three or one or two or three inputs are owned by the same person and that's the default assumption because of course that's the way bitcoin is most easily like works and the way most people still use it uh, today so um that the part of that assumption, as I that I just mentioned, is what you you call the common input ownership assumption, a heuristic, uh, which is just saying that every time that a transaction consumes more than one input, that those more than one inputs are owned by one person or one party. But in the world where that heuristic no longer applies, mm. what does it look like? Yeah. So. What what that could mean is it could be the case that uh, CoinJoin was just be let's be crude about it. Let's say CoinJoin was used more than fifty percent of the time. So somehow that shelling point flips, and it's no longer the natural assumption that um, all the inputs are owned by one party. Because in a CoinJoin, by definition, that's the opposite is the case that there is more than one person involved in creating the transaction and, and contributing inputs. Um, so if that happened, uh, it would break the most... Uh, I think it's fair to say that that's the most central assumption of blockchain analysis. There's, there's a lot of other factors to it, and I, I can't even call myself an expert at it, although I know obviously some parts of it. The, probably the experts are people sitting in, in those companies who've really spent a lot of time finding lots of clever heuristics. I don't know how many they... I mean, I think they kind of oversell their, their, their skill set, actually, but they, they certainly have done a lot of work in terms of like finding ways to make connections. But this is the most fundamental one because it allows... It's, it's like the cornerstone of what's called wallet clustering, or at least sometimes it's called wallet clustering, sometimes it's called closures, which is the idea that what you, what you can do by kind of repeatedly applying that uh, heuristic is build up whole sets of UTXOs, or I should say TXOs, because they, at first they're unspent and then they become spent, right? So uh, building up whole sets of those TXOs and saying, oh, the, all of that set, the ones that were spent, you know, two weeks ago and these other ones over here that aren't spent yet, all of those are owned by the same party. So it would make that, it would make that very difficult or I want to say impossible but it would make it a lot more difficult to do that the thing is 
that it's just difficult to get enough people using that. But like you say, the showing point, it's just kind of, it depends what wallets people are using, if they're using, you know, someone, mm-hmm. the, the coin joining wallet. Uh, and today there's only, well, there's not that many coin join wallets. And I guess that is also a heuristic as well. Like yeah. if a certain wallet can get yeah, I suppose uh, my, 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 my dis- discussion just a moment ago is, is a bit missing the point, isn't it? Because if we're talking about current coin joints and not future plans for like, in quotes, steganographic coin joints, then it's not really the case. As far as I know, what's happening today is that where there are big uh, coin joints like Wasabi or Samurai or Join Market, um, because they are easily identifiable as coin joints, and I don't even know if this is completely true because we hold, have that whole thing about the fixed address, you know, but at least in principle, the, the blockchain analysis companies could be flagging anything that has the pattern of um, a multiple equal output coin join. That's, that's the key um, feature. There are other features you can look for in these, in these transactions. But the key feature is having multiple outputs of the same amount. That is obviously a massive flag that says this is a coin join because there's, I mean, of course, that is not a fact because people do make fake coin joins as well. But let's let's say so. What I think from I've heard second, third hand, yeah, what, what blockchain analysis companies are doing is um, simply flagging them and saying that is a in quotes mix, but not attempting to trace through it because you fundamentally can't really. They, I think there's more they could do. For example, they could trace the change and connect the change with the inputs. Maybe they are doing that. Maybe they're not. I don't know. But they they can't fundamentally trace through the the equal sized output. So. So what's my point? My point is that is um, that doesn't that's not the same thing as if we had uh, coin joins which weren't obviously coin joins because in that case they might be trying to apply the common right. heuristic and being wrong in uh, applying it and in fact that that that's not even theoretical that's a fact because going back even several years WalletExplorer.com which was the first like public blockchain analysis facility that was available to the public. Um, uh, yeah, I, I remember explicitly like trying addresses that I had from Join Market and plugging it in there and seeing it connected to Mount Gox. Right, because, <laughs> because it was yeah. in a cluster. It was this massive cluster which they'd in- erroneously assigned me as having the same, being the same person as another person I'd coin joined with. You know, yeah. many, many of them, in fact. Right, you know? and that, who knows? Like those coins might have come a long way before they got to you. Just a complete mess. You know, they've. they've I mean, it, it perfectly illustrates that the fact that that. Blockchain analysis is kind of snake oil. I mean, it's it's a bit sort of clickbaity to say that, but there's a, there's an element of truth to that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Don't yeah, you? and uh, look I, with uh, the blockchain analysis companies or whatever chain spies or whatever you want to call them, they have some blog posts and they talk about oh this is how we caught the criminals yeah. and whatever. And typically, yeah. when you look at those, oftentimes it's, the, it's that the criminals weren't very sophisticated. Yeah. It's that they were doing address reuse. So, in your view, how much of this you know privacy problem? How much of that is address reuse? Like not even just like a, you know, they're just simply not even using HD wallets. Or mm. For the listeners, HD, hierarchical deterministic wallets, meaning you generate a new mm-hmm. address rather than reusing addresses. Mm-hmm. So Adam, did you want to comment just on address reuse? Yeah, I mean, um, I, the, I'm just trying to think of examples of what I've read in the past, whether it be blockchain analysis company blogs or similar analyses of criminal cases. And the one that always springs to mind is the uh, what was, that guy with an incredible name like, Karl Mark Force the Fourth or whatever. Do you remember? Oh, you don't remember this this, story, this crazy story about the Silk Road case where the the two of the FBI no, I think one of them was FBI agent, one of the was a Secret Service agent, and they ended. It turned out that I mean these were the guys that arranged the fake hit, right? But 
one of them, at least one of them, ended up being a criminal themselves in that they, were tr- they, they took a whole bunch of money out of the Silk Road account because they got admin access or whatever and tried to, to sell it. Well, not tried to, but I think did sell it, either maybe via BTCE or something. But when the whole case came to light, and the guy was put in prison, of course, but when the whole case came to light, they showed how they'd, in quotes, traced it on the blockchain. And all he'd done was he'd taken it out of one exchange, put it into his wallet, and put it into another exchange. So he had his name on both the exchanges. Right. So what exactly is the yeah. blockchain analysis? Right. Here? And mean, it was fully deterministic <laughs> spends yeah. the whole way. No, no, it's not like there was... I, I mean, one transfer, talking right? about like 2013... Yeah, 2013 here, because when he was actually doing it. Uh, I mean, even Dark Wallet didn't exist then. It's not like he, he really had such an... Uh, right, didn't have the tools to do But he could have at least used a mixer, because they had centralized mixers. They were already a big thing in 2013 uh but no he just like took it out of one exchange put it in his wallet and then sent it to another one well you know good luck <laughs> right yeah well even just like one or two hops would might, would have at least been something right yeah I mean, because been, then there's yeah. might be yeah the, the, like yeah that would have been something right i guess and for most people nowadays even if they're not doing any coin joining but they're at least not reusing addresses mm. when they withdraw from an exchange mm. after it's already gone through a few hops you're sort mm. of the trail is going cold there, right? Yeah, but it, it brings to mind this this case that's topical, isn't it? That I got quite confused about, and I wonder if you have more information than me. Which is this case where now, if I get it right, uh, I think it was Binance Singapore, right? Yeah. And the guy said that his funds got frozen after he had um, sent coins into a wasabi mix. Yep. Um, I might be getting confused. Were there two cases? I think there was a there second were, case. Yeah. And the second one was the one that confused me because I think he said that he went through one hop and after that he went into CoinJoin. That's right. So the He second, went to Electrum yeah. and then, or was it Electrum or no, some wallet? Let's through Samurai, that one. Oh, from... So the, okay, so let me, let me break that down. <laughs> yeah. So the Binance Singapore... So w- what we're thinking of as the first case is actually, I think, the third case where something like this has oh, happened. But that Binance Singapore case, that individual withdrew from Binance Singapore into Wasabi Wallet and then the, directly, and then they did the coin joint. And because of the fixed fee address, which as I understand Wasabi are changing now, yeah, there's right. been a big debate about yeah, that. <laughs> but, but again, this is yeah. that question of proximity versus fingerprinting. Yeah. And so in this case, that address got flagged because of proximity with the Wasabi yeah. Uh, yeah. mixing. and Possibly because, because of the plus token. Exactly, scam, right? exactly right. I think it's mostly because mm. on these blockchain analysis, people... That the, on their terminals or screens or mm. software, it's saying, hey, this is linked with Plus Token. I think, I think you're probably right. Yeah. And so their analysis tools are probably not yet sophisticated enough mm. to be doing fingerprinting. They are sophisticated mm. enough right now in terms of the proximity. Now, of course, maybe they'll just code up a new thing and look at these equal output. So runs. by proximity, I think you mean like taint analysis, right? Just basically yeah. saying there's closeness, a percentage, yeah. percentage relationship between this address and this address. Yes, closeness yeah. to yeah, these yeah. known bad address, right? Yeah. Now, the second case you're, t- you're speaking of, yeah. uh, I think the individual's name or the Twitter name was uh, Ronald McCoddle, no, right? right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so in that example... They withdrew from Paxos, as mm. I understand, and then they oh, went it, yeah. via Samurai. Reason being, mm. Paxos does not have uh, Besh 32 Bech cents. Right, yeah. So they went via Samurai, right. then into Wasabi, into Wasabi and right. then got done again for the proximity. So that's what happened. Right, in this so, your point, ah, so your fundamental point, I, th- I think I agree with you, is that the reason, even though there's hops, that that still doesn't take away this, what you call proximity. Well, I'm thinking of it as taint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a taint, yeah. I think that must be the correct answer as to what's going on. But it's it's horrible. We have to kind of guess, really. You know, we have to, so yeah. they're, they're black boxes. I mean, that's, that's the thing that just enrages me about this is they'll go to some 
law enforcement. And they've, they've literally, there's been court cases. I mean, Shores Provost, the, the Dutch yeah. guy, uh, you know, the Bitcoin core dev, he's, he's really good on this. He's, he's done some, uh, he's dug up some cases in the Netherlands and he's shown cases where like uh, the prosecution has said, look, this blockchain analysis company told us that this happened. And the defense say, well, can you show us the reasoning and say, well, no, it's, it's, you're not allowed to. So in, how is it allowed? Somehow the judge allows it as evidence, even though there's no actual explanation of what they've done. I mean, yeah. that's so dangerous. Right? Yeah, yeah. I've heard in the US where there was literally, there have been literally been cases where people have gotten let off from really horrible crimes because I think it was the FBI, or one of the three-letter agencies did not want to disclose their exact mm-hmm. uh Method. evidence yeah. and I, I think in the u.s i don't know the exact law again not a lawyer but there was there's some ruling or some law that uh essentially you're allowed to see the evidence and yeah. because they didn't want to disclose yeah. they kind of they kind of said okay fine and then because they're that's a u.s citizen yeah, that's, that's how it should yeah. be yeah i mean surely that's obviously that's yeah <laughs> seems obvious to me i don't know right but yeah when it comes to it, but there is a pattern you'll notice where in when it comes to financial things you know they they use this term money laundering and it basically absolves them of the need to actually prove anything uh, i mean all this kind of civil forfeiture is another facet of the same thing they'll just take money and say well you know of course, <laughs> prosecute the money they'll say well, the, uh, we'll, <laughs> you know, somehow that means that they the police get it and you you get you get nothing right. you know it would be like if you were, you know, you were making a cash payment to me and then I'd have to say, no, wait, this cash, this $20 note you gave me, who had it before you? And who was the guy two hops before that? Yeah. And it's just like, it's stupid, right? But nowadays in this digital world, that's the reality we're, we're moving into. And it, that's why... It's just I convenient said, yeah. they make this ethical exception for money, right? Like if a criminal uses a car, the car is not like, uh, you know, tra- if you're using the same car, yeah. you don't get put in prison. But somehow you know, with money, it's conveniently the case that, you know, you're, you're a criminal by association, you know. Right. Well, I guess... Again, I, I, I agree with you, but I guess there are some laws about things like knowingly using stolen goods and things, and so maybe mm. that would be like a parallel there. Um, but anyway, let's, yeah, let's bring it back to um, the privacy aspect. So I think one fundamental problem right now is even, even if you did kind of the right thing, quote, uh, uh, so to speak, and you, you used you know, these coin join techniques and so on, you could still get done by fingerprinting because there's other ways of wallet fingerprinting such that they might know, ah, yes, based on the construction of this transaction, I can tell it's a join market or I can tell it's a samurai Mm -hmm. wallet. And, you know, uh, examples of this might be, uh, I think Chris Belcher has spoken about this. He mentioned uh, end lock time or potentially end sequence. So uh, could you actually, would you mind just uh, outlining a little bit around how wallets do end lock time? Yeah. So um, end lock time uh, is useful in cases where you, um, well, it, it can be used if you want to use the check lock time verify feature. Okay, so you want to actually like control and say this output cannot be spent before a certain uh, block, which is useful in some you know contract kind of relationships, but then, uh, protocols. But there's also um, isn't that also like an anti fee sniping yeah, thing? Yeah, the anti fee sniping thing. Now you're, you're, you're testing here because I can't remember. But there's there's a rule where if you want to use uh, RBF, uh, you need to signal I, something. Yeah, I, can't remember exactly. I, I can't remember. It's one of those things I always have to look up, right? But the, the the reason it came up for me personally was because when this was my perspective on it, when I decided to implement pay join, which we might talk about later. Yeah. Um, uh, in in join market software, I realized that hang on, this is a bit different from join market coin joins, right? When we do join market coin joins, we've got a very special structure, 
And it would be absolutely pointless to try and emulate, let's say, Bitcoin Core or Electrum or anything else in our kind of little, as you say, fingerprints. Enlock time is a fingerprint. The version number is a fingerprint. And, and you know, these little bits of data in a transaction which could make it stand out. Uh, and I, I, I realized when I was doing pay join, oh, this is not the same as like join market coin joins. I should try to make it um, as much as possible sort of hide in the crowd to make it look uh, similar to, let's say, a Bitcoin Core transaction or a perhaps an Electrum transaction. I, I, the reason I keep mentioning Electrum along with Core is because I, I think they're, they're both very similar and they're, they're two perhaps of the biggest... Probably biggest, yeah. Yeah, wallets. So uh, what I had to do then was exactly what you're mentioning. It's called anti-fee sniping. And I, I don't remember the d- details of the, the either... The, I don't remember the logic of like the se- setting of end sequence and end lock time off the top of my head. And I don't remember the whole argument behind anti-fee sniping, but I do remember <laughs> that I just made sure that I did the same. So as far as I remember, it's something like in Bitcoin Core, the algorithm is something like uh, set the end lock time to the, the latest block, but with some small probability, you set it to uh, some blocks behind or something like that. Right. And I think the idea is it's to stop miners doing the fee sniping aspect. Right. So maybe it's uh, maybe maybe we'll just have to let someone correct this. Uh, yeah, but I'm, it might be something like a maybe it's something like a CLTV, but for miners kind of thing, like so to stop the miners being able to okay. or, or having an incentive yeah. to maybe uh, fee snipe. Yeah, something I, like that. I, I can't remember the argument, but it, I'm sure it, I, as I recall, it wasn't too complicated. I and mean, you're right, it's to do with mining, and it makes perfect sense. But the, the reason it's a bit confusing is because there's the the, the, the rules for both RBF and CLTV are a bit obscure and it's you both have to consider the end sequence value as well as the end lock time value. And the end sequence is, is, a, is a, the sequence number that's set on each uh, input and the end lock time is an overall setting that's just put at the end of the transaction serialization. And, and there are yeah. some other wallet uh, fingerprints as well. So uh, the ordering, so yeah, as most ordering, people will yeah. know, there's inputs and outputs in every transaction and then the wallet has to order those. Yeah. And then the the zeroth and the first input and you know the ordering that it puts them will it might put the change output first or it might put it last and you yeah know, but that i kind mean it might but in theory but in practice there's only two options that are ever used right one of them is just completely random uh, using a random shuffle from whatever your local software library is telling you is random it doesn't have to be cryptographically random so it just be random dot random in, in python or whatever uh, that's one option. The other option is only subtly different, which is BIP69, which is lexicographical ordering, which is effectively random, but it just it just chooses to do make it random in a way that is verifiable to all parties. So, I mean, people have subtle arguments, pros and cons of the two methods, but the difference is, is fairly minor, to be honest. So actually, on that question, I've heard of um, some browsers trying to do this. I'm not sure if browsers do do this. Browser fingerprinting. Yeah, so oh, as in, yeah, but as an anti-fingerprinting tool, I've heard of one uh, browser, I won't name just in case, mm. uh, but uh, the idea is that you would look at what are most other people doing in terms of like what oh. fonts do you have installed, what's your resolution, what's your this, that, and the other, and then bluff as that or spoof your values of that. Would it be valuable for someone to do that in terms of Bitcoin wallets and say, okay, most people are signaling RBF, most people are signaling this, most people are using BIP69. You mean dynamically, I guess, as opposed to... Because I think that, that does happen currently. Wallet developers sit down and think to themselves, well, which set do I want to be a part of? I want to be a part of the biggest set. But the problem is often 
the reason somebody's sitting down and writing a wallet is because they have some special unique feature about it. Yeah. And that means that they can't. And like the obvious example is Blockstream Green, right? Which uses uh, customized um, like GPUBs in, instead of like XPUBs and things. Oh, I yeah. didn't even know about that. But, yeah. I, but I know that they have their the sort of multi-sig set up and it's, it's their own special thing. So while they, they can't realistically hide in the crowd of, let's say, Bitcoin core transactions or, or uh, as far as I understand it, maybe there's some exception to that rule. But, you know, the, my general point is wallet developers, as far as I know, all, all think about this and try and try to, if they can, um, join join the party, so to speak. But there's oftentimes quite a lot of limits. On yeah. That. And that, in, the, I mean, in the case of join market, and I guess the same is true of Wasabi and Samurai, there's, there's this kind of almost flip case where... Well, no, it's the same case where you, you just have no chance of hiding in the crowd. You, 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 your transactions are very obviously flaggable, so there's pretty much no point, which is, of course, why Wasabi originally was saying, well, what's the point in changing our, right. our fee address because we're completely transparent anyway. Um, and I don't want to get into that argument because yeah. people got into a big argument Right, yeah, it. people are going to come at you for it. But look, I guess the other point, the yeah. other way to think of it is maybe you can't necessarily bluff as you know Bitcoin Core, mm. but maybe then the question is building up a big enough user base such that you have enough of an anonymity set. Yeah. But then the question is, how many Samurai Wallet users are there? How many Wasabi? How yeah, many Join Market yeah, users yeah. are there? And as you said, we're, we're living in a very consumerist, short-time yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, horizon yeah. society, so they're not necessarily going to be thinking about yeah. using these privacy tools. Yeah, exactly. Um. Great. So look, uh, what about um, with, let's say we get Taproot, and then that might be another vector for fingerprinting, right? Because at the start, not everyone will be using t- Taproot. And then, again, they will start distinguishing being, say, oh, that's a Taproot output. Oh, no, that's a, oh, that's a yeah, segue. Yeah, when we had the, the review thing, I, I remember making that comment, but I, I felt guilty making a comment because it's not very helpful, is it? I mean, obviously, it's the case. If you're trying to create a new thing that's better than an old thing, then initially it's going to be worse. Yeah, but I think I think with Taproot, most people will accept it's a short-term pain for a long-term gain. Yeah, and that's, that's, it's that's the worthwhile. idea anyway, yeah. But, they, but there's an important point there, I think, which is that there needs needs to be, but there ideally should be an economic incentive to switch and not just... This is something we've often discussed in the kind of Bitcoin privacy communities. We're never really going to get there unless we can find ways to make it not necessarily more convenient, but at least cheaper to do, let's say, coin join than not do coin join. Right. I mean, maybe that's just too optimistic, but there, there, there are, you know, the obvious one is Schnorr input. Cross-input aggregation, yeah. signature the pro- aggregation. The problem with that is that it it sounds nice, but it really just incentivizes um, the co-creation of transactions. What it doesn't incentivize is actual um, anonymity sets, because you know if I if I do my tran- my payment transaction with you together. Uh, but that's all we're doing. Like I'm making a payment output and a change output. You're making a payment output and a change output. They're obviously extractable you can easily see by looking at the, the values so we see without blinded amounts i see but <laughs> small uh, input it, signature yeah. aggregation doesn't actually incentivize coin join in the sense that we mean it it only incentivizes it in the completely trivial sense of putting inputs and outputs together it doesn't actually create privacy right but doesn't i guess okay so this that's an interesting one as well so we could talk into we could talk about that idea of multiple interpretations on a transaction right right and i think we're kind of here we're going uh, into yeah. like the boltzmann and yep. stonewall conversation yep. as well and i think you had a great uh, mm. so a couple of years ago just background for the listeners there was a, a github gist think gist. of like a little blog page if yeah. you're not familiar and basically laurent mt from oxt.me mm-hmm. and which was later purchased or merged with samurai wallet so part of the samurai wallet team put out this idea of boltzmann and mm. 
essentially, as I understand it, it is around trying to assess the amount of entropy in the transaction and the entropy across the blockchain. And mm-hmm. the, I guess the argument from Laurent and the Samurai guys would be something like, look, high entropy does not necessarily mean you're safe. It's more just like low entropy means bad. Mm-hmm. And it means if your transaction is deterministic, mm-hmm. uh, i.e. I know exactly my, you know, if I, if I send you all of, with one input, all of it, mm-hmm. it's clear that I owned it, right? That's a 100% link, you know? And so I guess the idea that's coming from like the samurai team is something like if you can craft your transactions in a way there are that there are multiple interpretations of it it can look like a coin join now you had an interesting uh, back and forward there mm-hmm. uh, has maybe you could just offer a, a kind of a high level comment on it and then yeah. whether your view has changed over this time sure so um the the it seems like the how do we explain this? Because it, I personally found it confusing, so I'm not sure when I first read it, so I'm not sure how easily I'm going to explain it to people. But the, So first of all, the concept of entropy, it comes from physics, and it's, it's, a measure of, it's literally a measure of the number of ways you can arrange something. So a, a crude example to, to illustrate entropy is um, a shuffled pack of cards is in, a, is in a high entropy state, and a ordered pack of cards where the cards just go one, two, three, four, um, is a low entropy state because think of it as like if the cards were just randomly thrown together, they wouldn't naturally... Uh, it, the, the probability of them being thrown together in a way where they're all in order is extremely low, right? So that's considered low entropy. Okay, so with what, um, as I understood it, Laurent MT was doing in his uh, uh, analysis there it was he was coming up with a measure of the number of different interpretations of flows of funds, <clears throat> through transactions um but uh the reason i had a bit of a problem i mean obviously i can't like give you the full spiel like here's yeah, the formulas sure. and here's the different examples it's too complicated but the reason there was a bit of a back and forth between me and him about that was because um i had a feeling that it wasn't not just a feeling it to me it definitely doesn't give uh an accurate sense of the how to say it the plausible deniability or the the, the, the different interpretations of a transaction there are. So maybe a simple example might be, uh, well, even even the very simplest possible Bitcoin transaction is is illustrates the point I think. Because if you have one input and one output, um, in that Boltzmann model, that's well, there's one interpretation because there's only one kind of fund flow going yep. on. Yeah. But if you think about it, uh, there's at least two i guess there's only two interpretations if you're thinking of it in terms of entities so it could be me sending to myself and in fact if you go on uh, what is it blockstream.info today they have their very primitive chainalysis feature where they um add some little notes to every transaction yeah, possibly a coin join yeah right? and yeah you'll see possibly a coin join for things which are definitely coin joins um but you'll also see probably or possibly a self-transfer if you see a one input one output and of course that is not only technically, but actually not a certain deduction, is it? Yeah. It's clearly the case that you could be sending it to someone else. So in my way of looking at it, I think it's far more useful to call that uh, a transaction with two interpretations than one. And if you go... Uh, and, and so when we had the little argument on the, on, on the gist, uh, I ended up saying, oh, I see what you mean. You're distinguishing between link entropy and node entropy. So... Uh, no, I think he uses those terms, and I, I agree with him. So, so node entropy by node, I would mean like the individuals or the or the entities like making transfers between each other, and the links would be like the flows of funds. 
And in the case of something like a coin joint, so when, you, when samurai are building coin joints, it makes perfect sense to look at the link entropy as a measure because it's saying how many different like um, ways could the funds have flow between these clearly multiple entities, right? But I'm more focused on this idea that we want to maximally encourage confusion and uncertainty about the interpretation of transactions. Like by, in general? Yeah, in general, by using opportunistic methods, but especially by using steganographic methods. And that would, in that case, you really want to focus on the other number. So a good example is like, a, uh, I'll probably forget the correct number, but if you had a two input, two output transaction, you can use what's called in mathematics the Bell numbers, that, to, the formula to calculate the... Um, number of different kind of partitions is te the technical right. term for it of of that set and it, it's surprising even at a small scale like two and two i think you end up with 15 different interpretations and at first that sounds too high right because you're thinking like oh maybe there's one person paying or maybe it's a coin join with two inputs so there's two people paying so is it really going to be 15 but they really are because think of it that every time you have an extra element either an input or an output that could be another person so the most complicated case could be with two in and two out could be alice and bob pay charlie and david uh, so you could have uh, you could have one person which is a completely fake two in two out coin join or just just a random pointless two in two out self transfer you could have two people and there's multiple ways that could be arranged and then you could have three people there's multiple ways that could be arranged right and then four people there's kind of only one really because you know there's no point just switching them around so anyway, if you do all the counting out, you, you come to 15. And then if you go to, to, to like five uh, bits, you know, three in, two out, or, or two in, three out or something, uh, the number starts to really blow up. I think it gets to like 52 or something when you, when you with Right, with when five. you consider it from this kind of different from perspective. This, from this, yeah, what we were calling in that, in that discussion node entropy, which yeah. is like, um, which I think is the more important. Okay, so uh, upshot is there's two different ways of looking at it, right? Yeah. And I think both are valid, and I, and I certainly see why he, he did the, the way he did it. But I have a, an, a sort of allergy to what I think Taleb calls the, the ludic fallacy, which is where you, you tend to like over-emphasize things that you can make mathematical formulas for. Right. This um, is uh, looking for the keys where the street light is, rather than it could be anywhere on the road. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a subset of that that general sort of paradigm. It's specifically the one where you, because you can quantify something, uh, you you place more importance on it than you actually should. And um, maybe that's a, a, a overstatement. But I, I think people should at least consider that 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 you know, there's there's a certain. There's a, there's a huge amount of uh, uncertainty in, in the nature of Bitcoin transactions, which ultimately comes from one key property, which is the fact that, uh, as I've said it before, Satoshis are not watermarked. This idea that it's a many input and many output mapping, and as long as you actually make use of that, you've just intrinsically got ambiguity in where the, where the funds are flowing. So you see, you see even in like um, the OXT or whatever um, entropy model, there's... I, I think it's a fair statement that that model assumes n no payments. I'll have to think about that, actually. But because the natural way it works is that you've got a coin join and there's, there's clearly like matches between inputs and change by doing subset sum. Yeah. But then you don't actually know which output is going to which party. So you, you sort of have these multiple combinations. But if that was a coin join in which one of the parties was paying one of the other ones or something, you know what I mean? I think I could possibly break even even from its own perspective that that 
I could find some weird arrangement where I don't want to say too much because pro- I might be wrong. So okay, all right, yeah. yeah. So look, let's. I think there are a couple of te- technical terms and things mm. we might just explain for the listeners sure. as well. So we've got two things here. So ox2.me, which is like the like a block explorer, and yeah. then there's another tool which is also run by the same team. It's kycp.org, ah, yeah. Yeah. and that one, I think that's what you're also referring to there, Adam. Where you might see, okay, there's three inputs and three outputs, or two inputs and two outputs, and then it's trying to draw the links there, and that's where that you might have seen the green and the red and the yellow and the uh, yeah. probabilistic links versus deterministic links, yeah. and so what it's trying to get at there and that's coming to what you were saying with like with the two input to output was it really uh, mm. where, where mm. there's a different perspective that you're offering here which is around node entropy as in who's which who are the parties behind it whereas the samurai approach if you will is more like a transaction entropy uh linkage model yeah, linkage. and um i guess so uh, before I just want to say I I don't want to disrespect any of the work, especially Laurent MT. I think he's done incredible work over the years uh, and continues to. And with a KYCP dot org, yeah. I can never remember which how many letters it is. Uh, I've only actually looked at it a few times. I mean, it's not like I know in detail how, how all the things that they're doing, but I am I'm just I'm express I'm I'm asking people to be a bit more uh, skeptical of being too concrete in that kind of analysis. I think that's really all I'm saying. And it's not that I think that their science is wrong or something. I'd, I'd probably, if I did a detailed analysis, I'd probably find things I disagreed with. But, uh, and, I, and I also think it's a valuable service to, to actually give people something to look at. But I, I just want people to be a little bit, um, try to avoid the trap of just falling into, oh, this is just like a button I have to press, and now I'm safe. Yeah, right? now or I'm whatever. safe yeah. because this website tells me I'm safe. That, that's what I'm uh, worried right, about. Right, right, yeah. and, and, and fairness, vice versa, yeah. people thinking that oh no, this is clearly this 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 coin go, went from here, like traced through ten different transactions because the, some website told me so. Whereas I've as I gave the example of Wallet Explorer, completely wrongly associated my addresses with Mount Gox. I mean, what if I did end up in ended up in court or something because of that? You know. Do you see what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I care, get you. Be careful yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and in fairness, I think uh, most of the the times that I've seen like the samurai guys talking about it, I think most of them have kind of railed back against this idea of so-called perfect privacy and that that's, you know, right, good, it doesn't yeah. exist. And really it's yeah. just, you know, you use certain tools and they may improve your odds. I think that's how I'm, at least that's how I'm thinking of it. Uh, but I think it also comes to uh, how holistically you're, you know, you're looking at it as well. Because here's an example. You might be not segregating your coins so for example you might have if you had some coins that you got from a kyc exchange and then some non-kyc coins and then if you sort of merge them or spend in such a way that an outside observer is able to cluster that all together is able to attempt to cluster they don't know because yeah. <laughs> right that's right that's right they can attempt the to cluster. ownership heuristic may be false in that's right yeah. that's right um and so i guess it comes to yeah, that, that point. Uh, and also, one other point I think would be good to touch on. You mentioned earlier subset sum analysis. Right. Could you just break that down for the listeners? Yeah, so that's just the simple idea, really. Um, if you have a bunch of numbers, uh, especially if you have two, well, if you have two sets of numbers, um, you know, like, I don't know, one, two, and seven on one side, and then you have uh, three, um, I don't want to add all this up, three, four, and eight. I don't, that doesn't quite match. But what I'm saying is that I could take the one and the two in the first set right. and it adds up to the three in the second set. Yeah. So I've found a subset of the first set, one and two, which is equal to a, a, a subset of the second set. In that case, it's just one number three, but it could be multiple numbers. Yeah. So 
when you look at a Bitcoin transaction, let's say a coin join transaction, because that's where it's most interesting, where you've got lots of inputs and you've got lots of outputs. And what you're trying to do, if you're trying to disentangle the coin join as best you can, is you're trying to find sets of the inputs which add up together to sets of the outputs. And the assumption is that it's a coin join where each party is is not paying all the others, but is just get, getting back the same amount they put in. So I put 10 Bitcoin into a coin join, let's say, in the form of a 1, a 3, and a 6 uh, Bitcoin inputs. So I've got three Bitcoin inputs, 1, 3, and 6, total 10. And my outputs, I'll have two outputs. One of them is five Bitcoins, and the other one is five Bitcoins. But the, the first five Bitcoin is is equal to a... That's, that's a bad example, because that's two. Yeah, that's but, um, I've got one output, which is four Bitcoins. Uh, and there's a bunch of other four uh, outputs of equal size four, because that's the coin join effect, the, the obfuscation effect. And my other output is six, because I need to get my change back. So as each individual in the coin join is getting out what they put in, although that's not exactly true in join market, which we might mention later. Yep. Um, and it isn't exactly true anyway because of fees, uh, transaction fees. But generally, you know, with a certain tolerance, if you're a blockchain analyst, you can say, well, I'll just give it like a 1% wiggle room. But basically, if I can find sets of inputs that add up to sets of outputs, I can assume that they're correlated. And, and of course, the fly in the ointment there is that one of the outputs is equal to a bunch of other outputs so you don't know which one you should associate to that subset so subset sum analysis is is how you at the very least you're going to be able to extract um common inputs and change outputs in in this standard classical equal output coin join now we can also have uh varied what's it called again varied size coin coin like, join without like unequal unequal size coin join. Yeah, unequal mixing, whatever. Yeah. Uh, we can in other words, we we can just abandon that whole idea of um, having equal sized outputs to create a specific and obvious obfuscation effect, and then we try and rely on a kind of um, combinatorial difficulty of the problem of finding subsets. But that's a highly controversial topic, uh, and I guess it's a bit technical as well. So, right, yeah, and it's sort of this is part of the debate around you know it, it, zero link and actually having you know zero deterministic links uh, mm. uh i think one other point that comes to my mind is whether the mixer is trying to deal with fees inside the mix or does does the fees sort of outside the mix or like a pre oh, the fees you're talking about fees now okay like the yeah or for the uh but i guess that that's one part of it but yeah look let's uh, i also wanted to just quickly talk about because uh, we talked about subset sum analysis yep. and you mentioned how um coin join xt this idea of mm. trying to break that with right. lightning yeah, this is this is an idea that um, I I think I presented uh, forgetting the years now, but I, th I think I presented it in 2017 in uh, Lisbon. Uh, I hope it was 2017. And um, yeah, how do, well, I'm trying to, now you mention it. I'm trying to think what was the line of like process of thinking that led to this. It was something like that was it. Yeah, because it was shortly after Segwit had activated, and obviously. Uh, Segwit has this really cool property that it allows you to build, and this is actually something that's written explicitly in the BIP, and I don't think many people pay, pay any attention to it, but uh, it explicitly says, you know what you can do? You can build sets of transactions in advance and pre-sign them. And of course, that's what Lightning does, right? But that's just one way of, of using this feature that Segwit has. You can make transactions in advance, pre-sign them, and... Uh, you can be sure that they'll be valid if the kind of starting transaction actually gets mined, you know. 
Um, and somehow or other, I came up with the, the, the idea that to improve the... Yeah, okay. So one goal you might have is you, you look at something like Join Market or Wasabi and you say, well, that's great and everything, but I would prefer that my transactions aren't obviously coin joins and can easily be flagged as coin joins, right? And one way to... And so when we use the word steganographic, we're referring to the idea that you could... Um, make a kind of cryptographic or a hiding effect, but without making it obvious that you've done it, or an obfuscation effect, without making it obvious that you've done it. So obviously, join market doesn't have that property. Wasabi doesn't have that property. Um, PayJoin does, which we'll probably talk about in a minute. But this was an idea that I thought might actually be even better than PayJoin in a way, which was to do coin joins, but to have them kind of spread over multiple transactions. So... And the simplest example would be if you, Stefan, and me uh, arrange... Now, let's say we've both got, I don't know, five Bitcoins to mix. Uh, and instead of just creating two equal size five Bitcoin outputs or whatever size, let's instead pre-sign two or three transactions. Um, and in one of these transactions, I'm going to be paying you four Bitcoins. And in the other transaction, you're going to be paying me four Bitcoins. So the outputs won't look like equal, Okay. Uh, but the trick of it is that we won't have to trust each other because we use, this is the negative, or at least it was before Taproot, is the negative of this, it requires multi-sig to make, to enforce the contract so that we, we both know that we, the other guy can't just uh, cheat us by running away halfway through, like say after the first transaction, you've got four from me and then you don't bother with the second one. Or something right, like. with honoring so, that initial Yeah, you deal. don't have to. Yeah. So, but, but very much like Lightning and, and these other systems is that you, you can use um, uh, like a multi-sig uh, address as a kind of um, an enforcement mechanism to make sure that uh, that is possible. I, I, I'm sort of I'm in an R because I'm not sure how much these are going to go into. Yeah, sure, sure. No, that's fine. But I'm yeah. trying to give the the, the, the listener the, the the general concept, and the, the concept is that once we agree between each other the pattern of transactions we want to make, so it's not just one transaction; it could be three, four, ten, whatever. Then, with a little bit of playing around, we can make sure that with a with a quick interaction between ourselves, it could be like it's subsecond, right? We're going to set, basically send signatures back and forth in the same way as they do in Lightning uh, on these transactions that we pre-agreed. And only when everything looks right at the very end do we then say, right, everything's correct. I'm going to sign and actually put money into the funding transaction, the actual start right. of the process. Yep. So at that point, that's where it all gets committed. And then when that funding transaction gets mined, either of us have the option at any time to broadcast the rest of the transactions on the chain. So if one particular transaction in the chain favors me and not you, uh, you don't have to worry because you've got, you've got the ability to broadcast it anyway without my, without my uh, say-so. So the, the extra kind of like, okay, so there's two extra things. that That's the basic idea, and there's two extra things that make it more interesting in my view. The first extra thing is that you can, using uh, back-out transactions, or using lock time, again, we were discussing yeah. earlier, you can, like, feed in other UTXOs along the chain. So it doesn't just have to be a simple, like, long chain of transactions. It could be, like, a tree. And even better, a tree maybe is a bit fancy, but even better is you could, you could add other UTXOs further along in the path. So it's not... Because otherwise, from a chain analysis point of view, it's a bit too simplistic just having one entry point into such a thing. Yeah, I see so what you're nice saying. It's nice to have multiple entry points. So that makes it more confusing. So, but then the final sort of 
end point of this. So I called it CoinJoin XT as a kind of joke, but because this was around the time when you know XT, Bitcoin XT, <laughs> yeah. you know. But the 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 final uh, phase of it was the reason you mentioned subset sum was because no matter how clever that is, and I think it is very clever, and I think even on its own. It's like really good uh, anti-blockchain analysis feature because they won't know which transaction they don't know. Like there might be a set of ten transactions in a in a in a relationship, and yeah, they'll all be connected. So they'll be what we call contiguous technically. You know, they're they're, they're all connected together. Mm. So it's not like um, atomic swaps where the transactions are disconnected. So you might think that's bad, but the, the blockchain analysis doesn't know where in the whole transaction graph this this set of ten is. So where he's got a lot. If he's looking for such a thing, he's got to find the entry point and do all the analysis and all the transactions. But the the, the small weakness that still remains is subset sum analysis. Because if we're not actually paying each other, if we're actually doing a mixing transaction or multi-stage transaction like this. Yeah, we're still in the situation where you've got five at the start, you got five at the end, and I got five at the start, I got five at the end. So even though these amounts are like sp split across multiple transactions, that that is still possible statistically to disentangle and say, oh look, there's a subset across this multiple transaction contiguous subset of the graph. I can add them all up, and I can see they add up. The inputs add up to the outputs across multiple transactions. Right. But wouldn't that be kind of assuming we both sent it back to our own cold storage when maybe we would have spent some of that, and now some of that's off with a merchant and off on its own? Well, chain? Yeah, exactly. If you uh, no, hang on a minute. No, if even if you're doing, let's say we set up ten transactions in a big set, and like the seventh one, you pay a merchant. Yeah. Even if we did that, which isn't very practical because you've got to wait and mess around, it doesn't break the problem I'm talking about, does it? Because it doesn't. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a separate flow. Um, it's the same with like... Um, anyway, yeah. That, so that doesn't break it. But what... Uh, I, I spent a long time trying to think out how on earth could we possibly break that? And I realized that it doesn't... It can't conceivably make any sense to break that subset sum analysis possibility without a cross-payment between the um, participants. Right. But then I realized that... I mean, you could argue this is kind of silly, but I actually I don't think it is silly. Is 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 if we make uh, the outputs uh, dual-funded lightning channels. The advantage of that is that, of course, in lightning, you already have this nice property that you're not exposing on chain who's paying who. But by doing that, the, the final state of the channel, when it finally gets closed, however, after however, however long that is, the final balances of the two parties are not what they were at the start. And that that's not because... I say I was paying you, but because I was paying Charlie on the other side of the world, right? So that's really cool. And so I think you already mentioned the phrase I used for that was bleeding the privacy of Lightning back onto the main chain. Because what it, the beautiful thing about it is, it because it breaks that whole subset sum for that whole set of ten transactions, it it breaks the ability of the um, blockchain analyst to even find that set of 10 transactions because they won't have a, su a subset sum fingerprint. Right. Where, how much of that is just generally lightning? Like, I yeah. mean, even, even just generally, yeah, let's say you ran a coin join and then you, you know, those coin join funds are sitting on your mm. LND node or your C lightning or a Claire yeah. node. And now you just open channels and you just use it. Like, I mean, obviously it's not perfect, but you yeah. have some level of privacy there. The, so my theory about that was that um, f definitely for sure, like 90% of what, what you're gaining, or 90%, but a lot of what you're gaining there is coming from just lightning being lightning. So obviously you want to use lightning and dual funded lightning, which is a bit of a hot topic on the mailing list at the moment, yep. 
is a really cool thing for improving privacy. Um, but the difference here is that you could be, and I would I would estimate maybe a 10 times multiple. You could be um, mixing much larger funds than you can actually mix on Lightning in this mechanism. Uh, and also, of course, you can also say technically that it has a nicer property in terms of like the, the security properties on chain payments as opposed to Lightning payments. But so it's not that uh, I would disagree at all that the Lightning and especially dual funded Lightning is is the most interesting thing there. But I, I still think it's very interesting to have it so that I'm able to do a set of transactions on the graph and have this kind of you think of it almost like a, a, a leaky a leaky faucet or tap. You know, it, it, there's this little leak somewhere and it stops the whole thing from actually adding up properly. Yeah, that's my theory. Yeah, and I guess it just kind of it, it sort of really gums up the works there. Yeah. So let's talk about PayJoin now. So right. PayJoin, it's this um, it's this way as you mentioned. Uh, I think listeners would know it as so. There's two inputs and two outputs and Let's say I'm paying you, you're the merchant, you're actually contributing inputs to that transaction and an outside observer does not know that that is actually a coin join and they also do not know the amount being paid. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so when it comes to pay join, I know it exists right now between two join market wallets and also between two samurai wallets. That's right, yeah. So right now there is that question of again how do we get that interactivity across wallets do we need a standard would it involve you know psbt from our, mm-hmm. our friend andrew chow and i know you have a big beef with andrew chow <laughs> no we're joking about this <laughs> yeah no andrew andrew loves me really that's that's the truth yeah uh it's just they, that's all for show uh what, what was yeah no yeah, so pay join yeah. yeah pay join and how would the wallets do you think there's a way that wallets will be able to communicate that cross wallet type yeah. Uh, yes. Um, obviously, that's that's that would be the goal. Um, so I think it's certainly fair to say in Join Market's case that it was just intended as a proof of concept. Um, it's functional code. I've I've tested it with real coins with people, and it works. But because Join Market, it doesn't have very many users. It's and even if it had, let's say, ten times more users, I th- still think it's fair to say that that kind of payment. I've I've always felt it's. It's not not a huge. I mean, it comes back to our earlier discussion at the beginning. Like, if everyone in the world is like actually using Bitcoin for real as payments, peer to peer payments, not through exchanges, what have you, then then of course all these tools become a lot more uh, feasible and important. Um, but obviously, it does seem fairly obvious, doesn't it, that we we should have a a standard and not just have individual wallets implement their own version of it. That's just terrible. Um, but I only did it just because I wanted to show people that it's possible. That's the only yeah. reason I did it. Yeah. Um, and I had the same thing with Snicker, which was like, Snicker is an interesting idea, but if it doesn't exist, well, you know. So at least in that case, I actually wrote a, a, a draft bit. Whereas with this one, we had, I mean, there was, a, there was a Blockstream blog post and there was a couple of other blog posts here and there, including one of mine. Um, but I think partly the reason you don't see like some draft bit for PayJoin is... I'm probably going to say something wrong here because I've probably forgotten things. There's all kinds of initiatives all over the place. But I don't think there's been a settled decision on... Oh, that's right. I remember now. Um, Ryan Havar, that's that's his name, wrote a, a a draft bit that he called like Buster Pay because his business was Buster Bits. And so that's why he called it Buster Pay. But I did say to him, you know, you can't use that name. That's just a terrible idea. Right. Um, but he wrote a draft bit, actually, I remember now. And this was probably about a year ago. And myself and David Harding, I think, were perhaps the only two people to really, like, 
maybe a couple of other people that were involved in the discussion, but I, I wrote some detailed notes on it, but for some reason that I didn't understand, he, he didn't want to alter any aspect of the draft, and I just felt like... So we're just kind of stuck. I mean, I could write another one, and then that'd probably go nowhere as well. Uh, right. But I, d- I do think it's a shame, because I think that 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 protocol as you uh, you quite correctly point out really needs some kind of standardization some kind of oomph behind it endpoint as well right it was called endpoint right? endpoint which is a fair enough name in a way technically but i i was trying to convince people at the time that no just call it pay join but the thing is um i think perhaps there's a reason why uh it hasn't kind of really taken off is 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 when i thought about this idea and i think i was thinking about it at the same time as coindron xt because i kept focusing on this subset sum problem and i realized this general principle that the only way to break subset sum is to actually have payments involved in the process but i never really took it very seriously because i felt that this is not something interactivity from the receiver is just a bit icky um but there is a huge. I'm torn on it because there's a huge incentive to do it because, as you say, it's this fantastic property that it is both steganographic and it's even like ambiguous on amount, which is an incredible achievement. Um, incredible, it's not an achievement, but it's an incredibly nice thing to have. Uh, to be clear, it's not like you've got no idea the payment amount. There, there's essentially, two, if I remember it correctly, there's two possibilities if you know it's a pay join. Yeah, but, but the other might power be is other possibilities that if you yeah. don't know is page one. There might be yeah. four. I'd have to right. remember. But it's anyway. It's not like an infinite number of possibilities. There's, there's an innumerable yeah. set of different payment yeah. amounts. But I, I did this little trick. I remember at the time when we when I first coded it, I was like, I put it up on Mastodon or whatever, and I said like, Here, can anyone um, tell me what the payment amount of this transaction was? And I was like, it might have been on Twitter in those days. I don't remember. But anyway, so like one person says, oh, it's obviously this. And like, nope, try again. And there's other guy who's like a really, really smart guy. He's made some really clever statement, but that was wrong as well. And it was just so beautiful to see like in real time that people just don't know what the payment amount is. And that's so cool. Yeah. Well, I think one good hope is hopefully with BTC Pay Server, right? Yeah. Because it is a persisting, it's a server, it's already there. And if you're a user, you might pull out your phone and you might have to do a, a, a couple of rounds back and forward of scanning back and forward. Right now, I know if you want to do it with Samurai Wallet and you want to do a in Samurai model in the Samurai Wallet model, it's called Stowaway, and it's a payment between two Samurai wallets, yeah. and they have to do a little bit of scanning back and forward. Yeah. And I think it's like well, it's two four, rounds it's, each. Well, no, it's like four or five QR codes, and I was just like, to Laurent, I was like, why is it four? It only needs to be two, surely. But there's some technical reason why they want to do like four. I think it's two crazy. each. It's two each. What so four? yeah, four <laughs> and then I think it's four and then the broadcast. Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of steps. I mean, come on. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, and there have been times. I've, I've sometimes I've been able to get it successful. Yeah, and other times I've tried it and it failed. So yeah. But yeah, ideally, I mean, you've. It may have been you. I'm pretty sure it was you. And other people have said this to me. When I get when I get pessimistic about it, they say, "Well, well, don't forget, like BTC Pay already does Lightning, so it's not like." receiver interactivity is not a thing it's already a thing so maybe you're right maybe we should be optimistic and maybe we will get sort of some kind of pay join thing on btc pay server which would be great yeah yeah and especially with so many people using it as well mm. um but yeah look let's talk about join market we've got a you know we've got a we've, yeah we've got the join market og here um <laughs> not so the join market og <laughs> the, the the second og after yeah, chris, chris belcher is yeah. the originator of the project so yeah yeah um uh, so uh let's talk about uh Maybe if you just give us a high level overview, what's the what is the make a taker model? Okay, so uh, so Chris Belcher came up with the idea of join market. I guess I guess it was like November, December twenty fourteen, and um, 
started talking about it on IRC and I thought, yeah, that works. <laughs> and what, what was his idea? It was just simply the to um, to do an arbitrary size coin join is difficult because you have to get that. When I say coin join here, I'm specifically not referring to, to these new ideas of pay joins, but the old idea of lots of equal size outputs. So, and he, he was saying that it's difficult to coordinate that because you've got to get everyone else to agree on your output size. So obviously one approach to that is to have a centralized party like in the case of Wasabi or where you, and uh, Samurai actually, where they decide the, the amount is 0.1 or whatever. And that's perfectly natural. And that's a model that you know, makes a lot of sense. But there's another possibility, which is Chris Belcher's idea was to um, have one party be one of the sort of peers in the join to decide the amount, but to have to pay for that privilege. And they're, what they're essentially paying for is the sort of um, liquidity to access that join. So they want to do a join, let's say, of 0.2436 bitcoins or you know, some, any arbitrary amount. And you know, ordinarily, a bunch of other people would maybe be interested in doing that, or well, they might, but you'd be difficult to find them. But if they're offered a fee to sit around waiting for you to turn up and say, I want that, then they may well be prepared to do it. Um, so that's like using a market solver coordination problem. And um, so to be more specific, the advantages of the taker, who is the person who is taking the offer. So let's say the makers are sitting around waiting and they are making offers and they literally publish a string of text saying, uh, I will do a coin join between 0.0134 and 2.76 bitcoins. Yeah. So there's many people like that sitting around. I mean, currently today, there's like a hundred and something of them sitting around. Uh, and all different amount ranges and what have you. So the taker comes along and he wants to do a coin join of 1.246 bitcoins right now with let's say, 10 counterparties. That's a kind of typical situation. So, yeah, going back into it. So, so JoinMarket has this uh, order book and you can go on, uh, what's the website? JoinMarket.me slash OB and you can see all the people who've got offers up there. Uh, there are some people who put some pretty big offers up there. But, <laughs> yes. um, but anyway, uh, so coin joins need a coordinator. So who coordinates in the JoinMarket model? Right. So the, the taker is, this is what's very unusual about this um, model is that the taker is the coordinator and it, what it means in practice is that the taker actually has the full mapping of inputs to outputs so the taker is paying if you think about it for th i think it's correct to say three things one of them is is to not have anyone else know his mapping that's the first thing assuming that he's not dealing with all sibyls if everyone else is a sibyl then he's lost the game well no matter what cryptography you use right. yeah um so assuming they're not all Sybils and he actually has some heterogeneous set of people uh, talking to him, um, he pays to actually have his linkages not known to anyone at all, by anyone at all. He pays to get the coin joy done immediately rather than wait around a week. And he, just as importantly, pays to get the exact uh, amount he wants. He also gets to choose how many counterparties he has as well. That's a kind of a... So he's basically in control of everything and he pays a fee for that privilege um of course that's inferior like as a privacy model to models where there's some cryptography used to blind the linkages from anyone for example coin shuffle or the chaomian server model which kind of relies on tor thing 
uh, or network disconnection anyway. Um, so what's my... Yeah, does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's good. That's it. Um, and so you mentioned Sybils as well. So yeah. what is a Sybil? Okay, so the, the concept of a Sybil attack uh, is just, just means the idea that if you develop a protocol where there are multiple participants involved, and you have to be a bit more careful to think about what do you mean by multiple participants, right? Because... You know, in, in, a, in, a phys- in the physical world with a bunch of people, you can see individual people. But if you are um, deciding that, you know, if you see different, uh, like, network-level people, you don't necessarily know that they're actually different physical people. They could all be the same person coming over, say, multiple IP connections or whatever. Um, so if, it's, if it turns out to be cheap for one reason or another for, for a single entity or single person to spin up multiple protocol people <laughs> so to speak then we call that uh, a sybil attack uh, i don't really know the origin it's, it's something obscure why they call it sybil but the um the idea is in some protocols it could actually be um dangerous or or, or have a very bad effect if there are uh, lots of participants which are actually all controlled by one participant and obviously CoinJoin is one of those protocols where that's true yeah. right and so comparing some of the different models in the past there were i think there were some custodial mixes right an example that got shut down was bestmixer.io and Mm -hmm. so on but when we're dealing in the world of non-custodial mixes such as joint market Mm -hmm. samurai wasabi uh they that is one of the risks it's dealing with sybils and uh, so the fundamentally as i understand you the problem is that you may be mixing with all but one person and Mm -hmm. that other person will know the mapping and then basically dox you but maybe am i right to correct you here because it's kind of weird but if you think about a centralized mixer in a way it's the same problem it's just kind of offset a little bit because you give your money to the centralized mixer but the assumption or maybe maybe i'm not right in saying this but you're kind of assuming that lots of people are using that mixer because if you're the only one using that same problem you're 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 kind of screwed so so good point yeah uh, it's, it's, it is more complicated in that case, though. But certainly for the non-custodial, it's very clear because we just random people turn up, and they're almost well, by almost always going to be turning up in some anonymous way. Yeah, because they want to protect their privacy. This this is a very like recurring theme when you get involved in in coin join and privacy type software. Is you, it's just so difficult sometimes. Like I get people coming onto an IRC channel and saying. You know, this coin join I tried to do, it didn't work. Uh, okay, right. Can you can you give me any information? <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you <laughs> the amount. I'm not going to tell you the addresses. I'm not going to tell you the, like the TX IDs. I'm not going to tell you. The, I'm gonna give you the log files. I was like, uh, I mean, we we get through it, but but it's it's a it's a curious thing, problem specific to this kind of software. Whereas if you were just working, I don't know, making graphic software or games or something, people would just give you the logs, right? They yeah. <laughs> so there's so, a bit of a yeah, it's a bit harder to yeah. do, and I think. But but it, my, well, the reason I, I mentioned it was a silly statement, but the reason I mentioned it was because Sybil problems are really hard to deal with here because we. Um, because our users are very strongly demanding of privacy uh, at every level, and they should be, and I, it's really good. We, our connections, the messaging service we use doesn't hold the information because we use end-to-end encryption between each individual pair of parties. Um, the connections being made are almost exclusively to hidden service, uh, these IRC servers, they're, they're hidden services. I mean, you can actually connect over ClearNet. We don't stop people doing that. Well, maybe we should, but I don't know. But almost everyone uses a hidden service. And uh, so we, we take all these measures. And so how do we deal with a Sybil attacks in that case is, I guess, your question, right? Yeah, and I think uh, Chris has this idea of uh, fidelity, fidelity bonds. bonds. And maybe, yeah. maybe I'll uh, try and cover that in another episode with Chris. Hmm. 
Um, but I guess that's just kind of the high level. Uh, we maybe. Let's but I but I was just just perhaps mention one other thing because I think very few people know about it, and it just cropped up recently in in the context text of dual funding lightning, which is that in the middle of 2016 we had a kind of attack on join market as a system where what people were doing was um, acting as takers, not as makers, turning up, making requests, and then not continuing and completing the protocol. And the the sort of the, the, the negative effect of that is that as part of the initial setup of in the first few messages passed back and forth, the makers were handing over UTXO information to the takers. And this is this is where it, it crops up in something like dual-funded lightning or any really any scenario where people are trying to cooperate to create transactions between anonymous entities. You, you've got this kind of like who goes first problem. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so what we what we did what we did then, which I think is interesting, and not, I'm not claiming it's some perfect solution, but it was an idea Greg Maxwell suggested to to us in the uh, at the time, and he just dropped this idea and said, you know, see if that works. Yeah. <laughs> and so I looked it up, and I thought, wow, that actually kind of works. The idea is that um, you make what's called a discrete log equivalence proof, and it's it's basically just a cryptographic trick that allows you to sort of say I've got I've got this UTXO and it's it's worth this it's worth a certain amount not up to a certain value and it's at least a few blocks old and I'm going to I'm going to give you the commitment to it in advance as the taker and you as the maker will be able to um tell if that's been used before without knowing without knowing which UTXO it is so it's not like it's revealing the taker's UTXOs he has to reveal it at the, after we've actually constructed it, you know. But but in the initial phase, it stops them from just like pinging and just get millions right, and millions like of... just like farming all the info from yeah. everyone. And this crops up like <clears throat> when we talked about PayJoin, it was the same kind of question cropping up like, oh, we got to worry about what if the customers like ping the merchants and just like, like let's do a... Let's and just do a learn join. their UTXO. And you get their UTXO and then you go away and you do it again with someone else or maybe the same guy again. So this this problem keeps cropping up. Um, but so I, I mentioned that we we called it Poddle or I, I wrote a, a blog post. It's, <laughs> no, it's stupid. I called it Poodle in the blog post. But uh, uh, if you look on my blog, you'll see that. That was one of the earliest posts on that. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. I'll, well, uh, I'll have to go and check that one out. Okay, so look, I think maybe we can just talk through a little bit of the high-level install process, just so people okay. yeah. are familiar. So uh, also, listeners, check out uh, my Ministry of Nerds co-founder, Katan. He's written up or, or yes. rather done a video, which is like a walkthrough. Uh, Adam, I think you saw yeah, that video as well. it's a good video. I like, I like that, yeah. Yeah, so let me just talk through some of the steps, just high-level, just so you are familiar with what's going on here. So, you know, you set up that folder, you uh, git clone, uh, you CD, you change into that directory, and then you are, um, you, I think you run install.sh. That's basically running the install script. And then you want to select Qt if you want the GUI environment, a graphical user interface for anyone who doesn't know. Then you run uh, JMV ENV, like running an environment. Then uh, Python join market Qt.py, right? And that's. Uh, it's like another script, right? And I think in there, you've also got to go in and comment if you want to do a tour, as you said, a hidden service. You've got to comment out the clearnet part. Can I, can I just mention this? This summary is—I mean, it's not perfect, but it, you, you're getting the right basic steps. But the thing is, um, both uh, the guy you mentioned, uh, also Katan, myself, yeah. if you look on the, the README of when you actually go into Join Market Dash Client Server, uh, the the main repository, which you'll find if you Google it. Um, like almost like one of the very first lines, it says, "There's a video of me 
doing this step by step. Ah, okay, got it. Um, which is also the the, the what's his Catan. name? Catan. This guy also did the same thing, but I guess his his is a bit more like discursive, and he's like obviously set it up. I was I was talking at a conference, so you can see what I'm doing. Uh, I, I hope I hope the way I did it was clear, but. You've got like two different video like walkthroughs, so you can. Uh, I, I guess one of one or both of those plus the instructions in the README should, should be enough. Yeah, for most. Your, well, your summary is basically right. Yeah. Yeah, and so then once you've set up your wallet, mm. you can either you know put the passphrase on or not. That's up to you. Mm, mm. Uh, and then you'll be presented with these mixed depths. Right. Right. What are these mixed depths? Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. I think it's 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 caused a little bit of problems using that term, but it's kind of stuck. You know, so. Um, basically, if people know about hierarchical deterministic wallets or, or BIP32 or HD wallets, uh, there's kind of, well, there's, I guess there's more than one aspect to those, those wallets. The, the main point of them, of course, is that you can recover just from a, a seed. So you don't have to like store lots and lots of separate private keys. You just store one secret key and that regenerates all the addresses. But the other part of it is the reason it's called hierarchical is that it has this kind of tree structure. And it's defined even in BIP32, although it exp expands it more in BIP44 and stuff, um, this idea that you can explicitly uh, set up what, what are called accounts within BIP32. So an account is basically two uh, separate sets of... I'm trying to think of the right way to speak, say this that isn't too technical and confuses people, but... Two sets of addresses. One set of addresses are receiving addresses, and one set, the other set are kind of change or internal. So sometimes you'll see it called external and internal addresses, and sometimes you'll see it called like receiving and change or something like that. But the general idea is that one of those sets of addresses is suitable for people making deposits and giving you money, and the other one isn't. Um, yeah, we can go into technically why it's set up like that, but. So that's called an account, a set, a, 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 a pair of sets of addresses, <laughs> and you can have in BIP32 any number of accounts. Um, you know, the the, the 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 tree path involves some, at least according to BIP44, has these settings for you know coin type and what have you, and testnet and God knows what. But the fundamental point is these accounts. Now, most uh, HD wallets uh, tend to just focus on using one account. Because it's simpler for the user, right? To just have one account, there's just less management and it's less clutter. Um, Electrum, for example, used to have the ability to choose to add extra accounts to your wallet, but they actually ditched that, uh, probably, again, for a UI reason. They don't think it, it's confusing to a user, so you, they just tell them, if you want another one, just make another wallet. Yep. Which is very good practice, by the way. To, if you're using Electrum, please do use multiple wallets uh, and try to uh, segregate. Obviously, you can't go to the nth degree with every coin, but but you know you have different wallets for different purposes. All right. So in Join Market, we do actually use the account feature because um, why we do that is because a very fundamental aspect of of how Join Market is trying to work is it's it's not really intended as a single coin join um, function. It's intended as a multiple coin join function. And the, the idea is that by having multiple separate accounts, we can do coin joins, which are self-transfer. So we send coins from ourselves back to ourselves in a coin join. But the trick of it is that the output, the, the equal size output or the coin join output, the one that has the obfuscation property, is sent to a different account. Right. And, it's and so that, that enforces that that output does not then get co-spent with any of the inputs. Got it. 
Um, so it's and pre and post mix segregation. That's what it is. Well, yeah. I mean, we 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 were here before all this this terminology came up, but but yeah. Okay, you can call it. I'm just simple, I'm just using like a very yeah. You're, uh, you're using uh, things that people have heard before. Yeah. yeah. So 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 I think think of it like that. And I I I, I wish we, we we could educate people better because often when they start using join market, if they ever get to the IRC channel, which is where we actually hang out, then we can explain this stuff to them. But there's some minor explanation in various parts of our docs, but we need we need better explanations for people so they get this. So that that what I want people to remember is the core concept is that yeah, of course you don't want to co-spend stuff that's gone through a mixing process with the stuff that come that's from the original place right so yep. you don't want to co-spend the change for example <laughs> with you know so yeah because think of it like that you've got a bunch of inputs you've got a bunch of equal sized outputs and a bunch of changes and the the, the equal sized outputs are have got some new privacy added to yep. them but the change haven't the change are still completely connected to what, what went before yeah so if you don't want to co-spend that change with the the the, the, the equal size output because then you've lost the entire effect yeah so all we do is we we enforce it but every time you do a coin join of course you can do a coin join to an external party if you want to send someone money but if you do a coin join back to yourself it goes into a new account now we, we we're not going to deal with an infinite number of accounts, so we just stick with five, and it means that if you go through five, you'll you'll end up the fifth might go back to zero, but that's already a huge level of obfuscation anyway. So uh, that so that's the cause. So what we have is something called the tumbler, where you actually we give you a, like a schedule of actual a whole sequence of coin jobs you can do, moving coins from one account to the other, and also enabling you to then move funds out to some external place. It could yep. be another wallet or it could be, I don't know, an exchange or whatever it happens to be. Um, but we, 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 we try to create both timing and amount decorrelation. Both timing and amount decorrelation uh, effects by uh, by using the schedule of coin joins instead of just like one or two. Gotcha. And so you can set up a schedule and it will then run through a number of joins before yeah. hitting your destination. So yeah, it might in, do... In multiple steps, crucial. Right. Like, you don't want the whole amount to all go out at once because then the input is t amount correlated to the output. Right. It's tied back, right? And so you could... Uh, so for example, could you say, you know, 0.4 Bitcoin and you wanted to spend 0.1 to somebody else and then 0.3 back to yourself. Yeah, you, so what you would do there is you would have, most likely what would happen there is you'd have your your, your target uh, address for the 1.1 and then you would create, or not create, but you would uh, find, let's say you have some other wallet, maybe a cold storage wallet, you would take two or three addresses from that, not not just one, because we, we, we tend to want at least as many destination addresses if i get this right about as many destination addresses as we have uh, accounts that we're tumbling through uh it's getting a bit technical now but basically you need multiple addresses uh so if you're just sending it to your cold wallet let's say cold storage just take three or four of them or whatever yeah. and then you know gotcha okay and now there's also a yield generator and this right. is uh Probably a good one to talk about uh, if you are willing to leave a machine on at home. Obviously, exactly. be wary. It's a hot wallet. Yeah. But you can generate some yield. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the idea is that's the maker side. So we, we, we our terminology is a bit mixed up sometimes. But the, the maker side of join market would involve, as you correctly point out, running a hot wallet over some long period. I mean, there's no point running it for 10 minutes. Okay, it's, you, You're generally not going to get coin joins um, you know, more than once every hour or something, even, even when it's busy. Uh, so usually a couple in a day is, is normal. So we're talking about long periods anyway. And um, yeah, so by doing that, you, 
let's remember you don't get some of the advantages. You you don't get the specific amount advantage, but if you're running it for a long time, that's probably fine with you. Okay. You don't get the perfect privacy advantage in each individual coin join where you know that nobody else knows your linkage because actually the taker does know your linkage. But I think in practice, this is not very much of a concern. Again, because it comes back to that. Continually tumble. Yeah, because you because you it comes back to that whole thing of like, do you want absolute perfection or are you just uh, you're just going to be opportunistic? Like over time, you let's say you leave it on for a month and let's say you do a hundred coin joins or whatever. I mean, are they all the same person? It's not very likely, right? right? Yeah, so it's so, likely to just tumble through yeah. and it'll be different people. And Yeah. yeah. And so what happens over time in, in that model is that every time you do such a transaction, you're going to receive um, a fee according to a kind of algorithm that you've chosen. We, we offer basically you can do a relative or an absolute fee. So it can be an absolute number of Satoshis or it can be a, a percentage of the, the amount of the coin join. Um, but generally speaking, what happened over the years that the join market was running is that it tended to fall to very low levels. So, you know, if you're looking for like returns, you come to the wrong place. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know that the lightning, uh, the people sometimes get annoyed. Oh, I can't make, you know, I can only, I can't one Satoshi, but here it's, yeah, I mean, hundreds or thousands of Satoshis is normal in a coin join, but the only sort of caveat I'd say is that it does strongly depend on the amount that you're willing to offer because the people willing to offer much larger amounts are able to, let's say, offer a relative fee on that amount. And so they're able to get involved in much larger coin joins and actually make, at least, it's still very small percentage-wise, but it's it, it's more money. Whereas if you're just going to offer like a tiny amount, you're just going to get a few cents right, here. Yeah. And there. I mean, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But I, I think it's fun, you know, when you see it and you say, oh, I've got to... Yeah. I made 800 sets yeah, today yeah, or I mean, whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, but it has... The point I made earlier is, is, is worth noting is that it has fallen over time. And I, my suspicion is that the main reason for that is the market kind of figured out that the maker is getting nearly as much out of this as the taker is. Right, because you're getting a free coin join out of it. Exactly, yeah. The only the only disadvantage of being the maker is the, the sort of security. Well, there's several. I've already li- listed several yeah. disadvantages, but the main disadvantage is like security risk. I don't want to put like half my stash on yeah, a hot, on a hot wallet. wallet. <laughs> running all the time. It's yeah. not even like a hot wallet that I turn on now and again, but yeah. running all the time. And so, you know, obviously there's been years of, of work of trying to make this, this secure, and I don't think we've had any meaningful theft Uh but bear in mind that the nature of such a system is that if there were a software bug, it could result in an actual theft where you, you're not even there at the time. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that's the danger of yeah. it. You know. But I, I don't think it's... I think probably the reason that this kind of software is unlikely to result in that kind of output outcome is because there's something intrinsically simple about coin joins. They're very, they're very naturally atomic. It's like there's only one part of the code where you have to just make sure that you're receiving what you put in. yeah. <laughs> And then right. you don't sign it otherwise. Yeah, and that's kind yeah. of it, really. Whereas something like, I don't know, Lightning is way more complicated, but obviously the, the people doing that are doing great work. So Yeah. So look, I guess, look, join market, I mean, it looks like a great tool. The only, I guess, the question I would have is, could it ever become mainstream? Right now it's very difficult to use. What's what's needed Like, if you were to try and make it a bit easier for people to use? Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. People often, that's the, usually the, the main thing people focus on. I I don't know. There's, I think there's two... I've thought for a long while there's, there's two fundamental blockages to, to a broader adoption of this. Uh, one of them is the necessity of using Bitcoin Core as, as a running node at the moment. 
And I think that puts a lot of people off even like starting the process because, oh, God, I'm going to have to get a note. No. <laughs> right? Uh, now, we didn't originally have that requirement, interestingly enough. We started off with a very kind of, in a way, kind of crappy uh, thing where we were using blocker.io, which doesn't even exist anymore, which is just like a, one of these blockchain explorers with an API, and we yeah. just like pinged it. But that was terrible for privacy. Um, for yeah. a privacy wallet as well, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the, there's the problem people have with Electrum servers, you know, but it, yeah. it's arguably even worse. Maybe not. I don't know. It's a similar problem. Um, so we kind of gravitated towards, and we did actually have an Electrum server set up as well, but I was kind of, I liked having that for testing, but I had more than one person say to me, you really shouldn't have that because even if, like, I'm doing all my privacy things right, if all the other people in the join are using, if all the other people in the join are using um, something like that, it's kind of screwing everything up. So I hope we will get uh, kind of bit 157 uh you know client side filtering kind of things set up at some point but uh yeah that's just something we, we maybe should start looking into now because i i think that would be nice uh, additional feature right to make it easier so just for the listeners who are unaware bit 157 uh it relates to the compact block filters uh, if you're familiar with the lightning labs suite of products that's called neutrino in their right. model neutrino, and basically yeah. it's like a again there's been some debate on this but essentially People use it in Lightning to not have a full node and get some additional privacy, so to speak. But uh, just note, Compared it's controversial to the old in some ways. method, which was called Bloom filtering, yep. which is not as good uh, in terms of privacy, but has the same kind of effect where you don't necessarily have to have a full node uh, to. We don't have to have a full node to to use it. Um, so that was that's one thing that stops uh, usage a little bit. I think I think that caused some problems. Uh, the other one is oh, I forgot what the other one is now. Um, like a mobile oh, yeah, app? Know, yeah, I was, I was thinking that just the, the fact that... Because um, let's say the install process is really easy. Now, I'm not claiming it is. Um, I mean, let's say you're, you're using Linux or Mac because it's kind of a bit fiddly on Windows. Um, even so, when you get into Join Market, you're faced with this kind of slightly confusing, to say the least, set of stuff. And we've just gone through a lot of those mm. bits and pieces like... Um, like the mixed depths, uh, like what's the difference between a single coin join and a tumble. Um, then there's the confusion about like, it's not confusion, but it's just it's just a bit obscure, like the fact that you need to fund the wallet and wait multiple blocks and with multiple addresses in order to actually use the take aside because of this anti-Sybil feature we were discussing earlier. That That's the kind of thing an ordinary user is not going to like think of. They're just going to, oh, I'm going to fund the wallet. You've got to be a motivated uh, yeah. user. And then, and, then, and then all the decisions you have to think about, like what exactly constitutes good... Because in a way, it, 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 it comes back to the beginning of the conversation about consumerist mindset, right. you know, which is that what people want is they want some central party to do all the hard graft for them. And I totally get that. Um... What they don't want to be is just left in this sea of like incredibly complicated ideas. And yeah, I've got lots of buttons I can press, but I don't know which one I should press. <laughs> and the order and the timing. and the, yeah, yeah, and they've got to think about a lot of things. Uh, but if, if you come at it a little bit more, and I, I totally get that. And it, it also be, of course can be frustrating that sometimes things don't work because the nature of our system is that we have a bunch of untrusted entities talking to each other. So we do have entities that either because of a software bug or because their network's flaky because they're all using Tor 
or because they're actually malicious, they don't complete the protocol. So there's a lot of stuff in the background of joint market software which is trying to deal with that. It's like when something goes wrong, it makes a tweak, it tweaks several different parameters and it tries again. Yeah. Also, it takes time. It's not convenient. Like if I, if I just want to do a coin join, I have to. I sometimes do this to make like retail payments. I'll just use join market because why not? Right. And but I have to sit there and wait like thirty seconds to a minute before like everyone's because you go into this kind of messaging pit on the IRC and you just have to ask everyone if they're available. And you have to wait for them to actually give you a response. And so the whole thing ends up taking like at least a minute. It's not like an ordinary just click a button and the payment goes through. Yeah. So there's lots of little. It's just fiddly. It's but just, then it just is. I right. mean, <laughs> and here's, here's the here's the rub, though. Or here's the thing. Like, if you want Bitcoin to have more privacy, you want more mm. people to use CoinJoin mm. tools. Now, mm. some people might say, like, I mean, some of the samurai guys are like, I don't, I, I wish Bitcoin never becomes mainstream, right? But theoretically, if you want people to have some level of privacy, mm. you want a reasonable number of people using CoinJoins and PayJoins and so yeah. on. Mm. But the anonymity set possible mm. if we stay only with hardcore people, yeah. it's much smaller, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's why I think this this fits this fits with the more sort of hardcore people, I think. That's that's what it ends up being, is like people maybe coin joining larger amounts and people who've like been around in the space a long time and people who know their way around Come Linux on, servers. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just it just is. Uh can you make a version of this or like a different version of this that is much more feasible for I've, I've, I've never really come to a, a firm decision about that question people are, people are always asking about that so like one of the most commonly like discussed points is like how can we make the GUI easy to use and I always feel like you're, you're, you're aiming at too superficial of a level because even if you make it really slick like one click this one click it's intrinsically quite a sophisticated tool um, is my opinion. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is a very difficult question that people are constantly arguing about. But that's why I spend time talking about stuff like Snicker and PayJoin and yeah. what have you. Because do, you well, do you want to talk about because Snicker? Let's, yeah, because it, it prevents, presents a nice sort of counterpoint to, the, to, the, to that point of view, doesn't it? Because that's almost like the opposite end of the spectrum. Although, although um, I would argue probably Wasabi is more like the opposite end of the spectrum to, to Snicker. Because with Wasabi, you've got everything like tightly coupled and coordinated. Um, and that means that the users are. Um, so what am I trying to say? It's it's. So with Snicker, it's it's very much opportunistic, peer to peer, anytime, anything can happen. Yeah. So would you mind just giving an overview, like just a high level? What? Uh, so just for the listeners, obviously I've done some reading, but uh, just for the listeners, can you uh, just to give a high level? What what is Snicker? What is Snicker? Right. So Snicker is a. One of those silly acronyms or backronyms that stands for simple non-interactive coin join with keys for encryption reuse, which is obviously a mouthful, and it is a backronym. Um, but essentially, let's not worry about that. Essentially, this is an outcome of trying to find any model at all for coin join, which has the property that the sender and the receiver don't have to interact with each other. That that was the goal. Um, now superficially it seems very difficult to achieve that and indeed calling it non-interactive might be a bit misleading i think it's the correct term but some people tell me it's not the correct term and they say you should think of it as asynchronous and not non-interactive okay so what that means is that the sender is going to the sender is going to do some stuff then post a message that is encrypted somewhere that could be a hidden service for example 
and the receiver is not going to ever talk to the sender in any sense, but is only ever going to poll or ping that server or multiple such servers to find encrypted messages which he or she can decrypt. And by some magic or other, it is the case that the if the receiver succeeds in decrypting that message from that server that they've pinged, what they find is a transaction. Well, if what they find is a transaction that uses one of their coins as input, but also uses somebody else's coins, and that other person has already half signed the transaction, they've signed their part, and the outputs are agreeable to the receiver, they can see that they get their coins back, and maybe they even get a little sweetener, you know, 100 sats, whatever. Uh, then the receiver may or may not choose to co-sign that transaction and broadcast it onto the network. That's the kind of functional summary of, of what it is. Yeah, gotcha. And so let's go a little bit deeper into yeah. how uh, how it is that uh, you can, first of all, find this transaction that's possible. Yeah. So, uh, And maybe uh, if you could just clarify between the two versions. I think version one you were talking about was like an address, address reuse, reuse case. Scenario, but yeah. I think in practice... You were saying version two was actually more uh, appropriate. Could you outline that? Okay, yeah. So um, the first iteration of the idea was was based on the the problem that we currently have with Bitcoin. Um, it's both a problem and and a positive, which is that the outputs in transactions are script pub keys, which are hashes of pub keys and not just plain pub keys. So because they're hashes of pub keys, then if if you've got Stefan, have got an output somewhere. Um, a UTXO, that is to say, I can't see the pub key until you spend it. Um, so if I want to make a transaction which spends your output, I have a serious problem trying to figure out how to do that. Um, well, it's not that. It's, it, I have a problem figuring out how to create an output for you. That's, that's the problem. Because usually, if you think about the normal Bitcoin transaction workflow or, or spending workflow is that although the receiver doesn't have to kind of interact with the sender, they have to, in advance declare an address to be to be sent to um and the problem with snicker as an idea is that i am i am spontaneously trying to create a transaction with you without you having posted an address anywhere um maybe you have but i don't know you so i don't know where that address would be i don't know what, where your web, website is or where your business card is or whatever it is right so i don't know your output address so the trick snicker uses is something called uh, tweaking keys so you can take a public key and you can add uh, a random number to it effectively. Uh, and the magic of that is that even though I've added a random number, which I know, to your public key, it's still the case that only you know the private key. So even though there's kind of a shared data, it, you've got the secret data that you had to begin with, your, your private key, and you still keep that. And so when you add your private key to this random data that I created, you create a new private key, which still fundamentally you own because I don't know your... Yep. You, get, you get the idea. So that's the, that's the core idea. But in order for that to work with like legacy addresses, um, I need to know the public key before you've spent the output, which I don't. I only know the hash of a public key. And so that's why the first version of this was, oh, let's just use reuse addresses. Because if you already use that key before... I've now exposed the public you key. You exposed the public key in the spending transaction, the first spending transaction. So I know the public key and therefore I can... Also, of course, it's nice because... Well, that's not that thing. So anyway, so that's the first version. And obviously that's kind of crappy in the sense that there are... It's relying it's on bad e practice. Yeah, <laughs> it's relying on bad practice. There is a kind of amusing pattern, though, that it actually also solves a bad practice because it improves the privacy of somebody who's using a bad privacy technique, which is a pattern that repeats here. 
But so in version two, all it was just a natural extension, which was like, well, we don't need to do that. Uh, we can we can just because this is opportunistic. I've used that word before, right? Because this is opportunistic, I don't have to make sure that every such proposal I make, every such like proposed transaction, is actually going to happen. I can make tons of them, right? Um, I can, for example, even if I'm just using your key, I could make ten different proposals, and you could just take up one of them. And after all, you know, Bitcoin's blockchain solves the problem of double spending, right? So there's no issue of like having multiple tr versions. Um, so consequently, we could we could just um, speculatively try different keys. Um, so what we would do there in the second version is instead of so the output is let's say a hashed pub key, so we don't have a key there, but we could try and guess what the input corresponding to that output was. Now, usually, common input ownership heuristic type of thing means that you think that all the inputs are from the same party. So yeah. pa pattern is repeating here. You think that all the inputs are from the same party. So as long as you can guess which one is the change output, you, if you successfully guess which one is the change output, let's say there's two outputs, then you know that the pub keys of the inputs are owned by the same person as that, as that output. So you can use one of the pub keys in the inputs and tweak that to create a new output address instead of tweaking the the key in the output. Sorry, the, 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 the words here are really confusing. So let me see if I can, that's a bit tough, but let me see if I can summarize that. So version one, basically it's relying on identifying an individual who's doing address reuse. And when they spend, they're revealing the public key for uh, that uh, output uh, or any outputs kind of sitting at that yeah, address, if you will, exactly. even though Bitcoins live in UTXOs, they don't live in an address kind of. Uh, and then version two, as you're saying, is... Let's say I did a payment, um, you yeah. know, I went to buy from the Blockstream right. store or whatever, exactly, yeah. and I did a standard two input, two output transaction. Yeah. Uh, and then I, one of those was the payment mm -hmm. uh, out, output, mm -hmm. and the other one was a change output mm -hmm. coming back to me. Correct. And let's say, because you, you're opportunistically scanning the exactly. chain, I'm scanning the you're blockchain. looking for an opportunity. And the, yeah. in that change output, you'd be like, oh, hey, Stefan, that... When you did that change output, yeah. so I wouldn't be calling you Stefan. Yeah, I you, I you would, know. you would, we <laughs> yeah. wouldn't know each other, right? Yeah, but yeah. we're just you know, making it easy yeah. for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so let's say you would, you would be like, oh, hey, this guy, his change output, mm -hmm. I have a key yep. that can, um, like, uh, I have an opportunity to put uh, to create a transaction mm -hmm. and send that in some, you know, blind kind of way to a mm -hmm. server or an email or something, mm -hmm. the server, let's mm -hmm. say. And you are able to spend my what was my change output yeah. to your address, and you can in return offer one of your UTXOs to me without me knowing, kind of. Uh, and am I getting that right so far? Um, just the last couple of sentences, it seems to be getting a bit confused. So, yeah. so you got the, the change output, and yeah. I've I've guessed that that's the change output. Then I look at the in your case, there were two inputs, right? Yeah. And I can choose either one of those inputs because I'm assuming it's both you or both the same person. And I can look at the public key in that spending, you know, in the in the in the witness, you know. Yeah. The public key is there. So I can take that public key and use that instead of using the pub key in the change output, which I don't I can't see because right. it's behind a hash. Sorry, yeah, you're right, you're right. It's from my inputs. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. Yep. So once I've got that public key, I can do two things with it. Uh, the first thing is I can add a random value and tweak it to create a new output address for you, as I was explaining just a moment yeah. ago, that will still belong to you, even though I've added a random value to it. So I can construct a transaction that pays you the appropriate amount and uses 
that change output as an input, and right, that'll be one of the inputs. And the other, the, the proposed transaction I'm creating consists of spending that change output and spending one of my UTXOs. And the outputs of that proposed transaction, one of them is, is the newly tweaked output for you that I've created for you. And the second output, or there'll be three actually, but the other outputs will be for me, will be my, my outputs. Um, and that'll be, that'll be a coin join, that'll be a snicker coin join. So I wanted to say something, I've forgotten what it was. So the inputs, yeah. Does and that, in terms of like, sense? yeah, and then in terms of uh, your wallet, quote unquote, knowing it can do this, how would it do that? And how would it kind of right. access this info? Right, so I, th I just remember what I wanted to say also was that the same public key that we've just like elaborately tried to figure out is the one that I would use to encrypt this transaction proposal and put it on a, a, a some... There's actually some discussion about whether encryption is, is either necessary or even a good thing here, but it's certainly possible to do it this way, and that's how it's proposed, is I take that public key and I do an encryption so that when it gets put on some bulletin board, nobody can read it and figure out who's proposing what to who, in theory. Yeah. Okay, and then you're going you're gonna to you're gonna try and decrypt various different blobs, and you're going to find the ones that actually successfully decrypt. And what you'll see inside there is that proposal. And you'll be able to co-sign. Obviously, I've included my half signature on the, the transaction for you. Um, right. And so, again, so this is a lot of technical detail, yeah, but right, yeah. <laughs> obviously in practice for the user, it's just going to happen in the background, right? Like your wallet yeah, will yeah, just, yeah. in the same right, way this that... Point, this point, yeah. Yeah, this, this yeah. point is very important. So, so uh, we, we are getting lost in, in the weeds because it is, it is kind of technical, but although, although I have to say, although it's very technical, the actual like primitive elements of it are, are really simple compared to a lot of other things. Um, now... Uh, the practicality. So when I first wrote the, the blog post about this back ages and ages ago, um, I decided it would be a really good idea to start the first half of it with like a, a scenario. And I called it like Alisa in Moscow and Bob in New York. And what the reason I did that is because I was trying to really hammer home that the, the reason I think this is interesting is because if you're the receiver... You don't have to be, I don't personally don't think you have to be a techie. And I think your wallet developer who made your, let's say, mobile wallet doesn't have to do that much work, you know, arguably. To implement. Yeah, to implement this kind of pr protocol. And, and so the, the, the user experience, so in, in that blog post, it was Bob in Moscow. He's like, he's not technical, right? And he's not even in the same time zone as Ali, Alisa. And he's just, uh, he just switches on his phone. He doesn't even have his, his, his wallet on all the time. He just has his maybe, I mean, obviously it can be in the background, but... Let's say he just switches his wallet on for half an hour every every day or whatever. And even that's enough for this kind of thing to work, where he could just toggle a switch that says, if anyone makes a proposed Snicker coin join to me, um, as long as it doesn't like lose any of my money, as long as I'm net positive or zero, I'll accept it. Because there's no there's no risk in that, right? Um, so in theory, it wouldn't need to involve any user interaction. That, that's what I was hoping for, okay? Now... Do you see now why I was saying earlier this is kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum to something like Join Market or even Wasabi? Because in in both in the user experience and it's just um, it's just very opportunistic and very like it's not interactive. It's not you don't have to sit there, turn yeah. something on, wait, and what have you. You know, right. yeah. And from the receiver side, but from the sender side, I think it could still be quite a technical thing because. It depends how it's set up, but you might have to like scan the blockchain with some sophisticated tools to find. Oh, and I, and I forgot ones. to mention in in our version two example the change output. Don't forget, 
you don't even have to be smart enough to know which one is the change output because usually there's only two. You could just make two proposals. Right. One of them's yeah. Right. One of them's going to be wrong. Right. And so. I think there's one other benefit that's worth calling out here, which is that it also helps break the common input heuristic yeah. because it is specifically like taking what was meant to be only you know my inputs and now it's like your wallet is able to spend that. Hmm. So it kind of, to an outside observer, does that kind of... Well, I just want to put a caveat again because this is one of those non-steganographic things because it, at least as, as designed, as written down, is it's like a two-party equal-sized output coin join. So, I mean, just the fact of having two equal-sized outputs is kind of giving it away as... I mean, arguably, you, we, could, we could have different designs. Um, there's various things we could do, but I think that the basic primitive idea is already interesting on its own. It's just like, okay, it's just an ordinary two-party coin join. It doesn't give you... It doesn't have chain efficiency. Like, if there were hundreds of thousands of these, that would, that yeah, would bloat, bloat the chain, right? But yeah. on the other hand... What I like, I like the, the, the heterogeneity. And also, in theory, you could do payments with it as well. Although this is kind of like pie in the sky, really, at the moment. Yeah, it's, that's a could, bit too far out there. Yeah, but, but you, because, you, because you, could, you, could, you could make lots of proposals. And you, if you sweeten it with enough sats, then there might be lots of people motivated to actually get your, get your payment to go through in actually a reasonably fast time. Yeah. So in theory, it could be done as a payment. But, I mean, yeah, pie in the sky. Yeah. Well, I guess I mean, look, Lightning. That's that's one aspect. Have you done a lot of thinking about Lightning and privacy there? And you know, I mean, there's there's different there's different concepts around the privacy available for that. I'm certainly not somebody who's gone into all that. I know there's been some significant academic research into the whole area of like Lightning, the network level privacy. Um, but I've I've done a certain amount of study of some of the most important like core elements of Lightning, like the how the HTLCs work and stuff like that. But so I've, I've thought about it, but I, I'm, I'm certainly not the expert in like the, the various weaknesses and how people are plugging them. You know? Yeah, sure. And look, I guess it, the thing is, even after uh, um, a bunch of these, uh, even after you know people using like coin joins and so on, there's still that um, that factor of fingerprinting, right? So yeah. you still have to think about how to avoid that, like the end lock time and the yep. RBF signaling and so on. Yeah. But I guess these are the steps and. Uh, you sort of have to start. Somebody was talking about that the other day. I think it was yesterday. Um, I think it's a really important point that as we develop into more sophisticated contract relationships within, especially within Taproot, we've got to think about how we address this fingerprinting concern. Because at one level, it, when you have cooperative cooperation in contracts, you just have multi-sig, usually two of two, or it could be, I guess it could be N of N as right. well. But in any case, we've kind of addressed all that, and hopefully, we can get everyone. But like, like we were saying earlier in the, in this discussion, like there, it's going to be really hard to get all the wallets using, not fingerprinting themselves because they have special features, and it's kind of. Uh, I mean, I think there is a certain gravitational force that's pulling people towards using the same values where they can, but there might be cases where they're not able to. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. I guess if you've got any other uh, things around. Um where you where you see like what are the hopes for Bitcoin privacy uh, yeah. going forward? I mean, um, it's a very big topic. Uh, the the I, I recommend people to look at Chris Belcher's privacy page on the Bitcoin Wiki as a good like because it can seem a bit overwhelming this topic, but he's got a long list of all different things that you can think about and try and if you just want to improve, you know, you just want to be a bit better. Uh, that's that's a good place to start and then go from there. Um, the, there's lots of other areas of, of this discussion I don't think we touched on, like um, 
the, the more the newer and more sophisticated technologies that are being used in things like Monero and Zcash and, and various <laughs> less reputable <laughs> coins, you know, zero knowledge proofs and uh, ring signatures. But I think especially zero knowledge proofs is something people should look out for. And, um, you know, and of course, just basic things like, well, not basic, but like confidential transactions. So there's, there's lots of like more souped up ways that we could, in theory, we could just like add them just like adding an ingredient into the pot into Bitcoin and oh, all these problems just disappear. But unfortunately, it's not quite like that. There are there are some significant um, trade-offs. Um, yeah. And the obvious one being to do with like uh, the soundness of the money supply aspect. Um, yeah. Which really are kind of a fly in the ointment, but they're also kind of sometimes other technical trade-offs, things like um, scalability issues with these things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I guess the most, probably the most realistic one I can think of is really the whole cross-input signature aggregation one, right? Mm. Because at least yeah. we we can, like, uh, I mean, you were talk- we were talking about it before, but I think maybe that's the one that looks, you know, sort of realistic that we'll get it, but it'll well, that, take some time. Well, that and off-chain, right? Lightning yeah. is already practical. Uh, it just It's just a bit limited in size and, and scope, but it's sort of already practical and but you're you're right that if we are able to move to a better use of the intrinsic linearity of the schnorr signature and not not just with the signature aggregation but i think people tend to forget the the value of the um the scriptless script construct which means that you can kind of it kind of means you can embed kind of how to put it say you can swap coins for secrets in ways that are completely uh, impossible for not it's not just that people can't see that you're doing it but it's got deniability which which literally means that i could tell you that this signature that i made actually was hiding this secret and the evidence i could provide for that would be exactly the same as the actual real person who really did use that secret you know the the real see this what i mean so it's like information theoretically perfect so you you can't um uh, but anyway, my my point is that the linearity of the Schnorr signature, both sort of additive and subtractive, means that you can you can get these very strong effects. And we see the same thing happening in Lightning, where they have the uh, multi-hop lock, the point time locking point idea, point time lock contract instead of hash time lock contract. Idea is very powerful in the same way. It's it's the same mathematics if you write it out. That's why it's, it's all coming from the same thing, which means that you can kind of. Yeah, so the addition of Schnorr, this is why the addition of Schnorr was kind of, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. Um, that and the kind of slightly better security properties, but, yeah. Great. Well, uh, look, I think uh, we've, we've actually gone over two hours now, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, look, I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks very much for joining me. And obviously, uh, Adam, where can uh, the listeners find you and where can they find Join Market? Um, so me myself, uh, I'm on Mastodon uh, Waxwing at x0f.org. That's Vladimir Vandalon's server, and um, on GitHub, I'm Adam I S Z or I S Z if you're American. <laughs> and I'm um, what's the third one? I've forgotten. I oh, just join market. So there's joinmarket.me, is it? Oh. Joinmarket.me/blog is is my blog, and joinmarket.me has hosts, as you mentioned earlier, a, a join market order book like table, but don't rely on it. It's not perfectly accurate, so you should set it up yourself. You can do it locally. You can do the same page locally. Uh, you, you join market itself. You should go to, um, I mean, uh, GitHub.com slash joinmarket-org slash joinmarket-client server. <laughs> Maybe not the simplest uh, page name. 
Um, but you can. I'll, yeah, that'll all be in the show notes. I just I think it's good to just have it called out. Uh, but yeah, look, thanks again for joining me. Adam. No, it was great. Thank you. Post the interview, Adam just also wanted to mention that there is the IRC channel, Join Market channel on Freenode. So make sure you go there if you want some tips on getting started with Join Market. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, if you want to support me, you can leave a review on Apple, iTunes, or whatever platform you are listening or viewing this on, whether that's YouTube, leave a like and subscribe. That helps new people find me. And always, it's always great if you can share the show as well. If you want the show notes and the transcript, you can go to stefanlevera.com. This is episode 149. That's it from me. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.